How are you today? Uh, I don't, it, it feels weird. I think I broke a toe just a little bit ago. Uh, what happened? So, we have these baby gates set up at the doorways of the rooms with carpet in them because the dogs, uh, it's been muddy outside, so we want to keep them off the carpet as much as possible. And I went to step over the baby gate and, like, like rammed my little toe right into the door jam. Oh, not the gate, the door jam. Yes. Oh, you did a wide swing with your leg? Yep, I, I stepped oh. wide. <laughs> Damn, I can feel that, just you telling me that. Yeah, it's one of those, it's very visceral. It's like, you, you can identify with it way too easily. Now, when you did this, did you immediately stand on your hurt foot with your other foot? Uh, I went down to the ground and pushed on it with my hand. Like, trying, yeah. to, trying to stop it. Yes, because uh, that's my immediate reaction, is to just put like my entire body weight on my other foot and just crush mm-hmm. my stubbed toe and hoping somehow that like <laughs> crushing it with my body weight will somehow prevent the pain from getting to my brain. Okay, so also, I have weird little toes. My little toes like tuck up under my other toes almost. Okay. As if I had been uh, subject to foot binding or something as a child. <laughs> so I was going to say, were you, did you happen to be a Japanese geisha yes. when you were younger? How did you know? <laughs> it's just in the way you carry yourself. You mm. have a lot of grace. Always uh, twirling parasols and carrying books on my head and whatnot. Yeah. And... Pouring tea with <laughs> extreme delicacy. To say all the tea ceremonies is what is what did it. <laughs> Why well, I mean, every episode I sit here and watch you pour tea for twelve minutes, just <laughs> waiting to start. Just like, could you please hurry up? And you're like, no, it's a process. You have to respect the process. It's and, about the process. Yeah. Oh, yeah. How are you? I haven't talked to you for a couple days. Um. Good. Some ups and downs. Yeah. Uh, just like random outbursts of emotion at times, but that's pretty much the standard for me. So nothing to worry about there. Uh, I fell asleep super early last night because of the time change. Mm-hmm. So I woke up basically in middle of the night this morning. I was like, oh, cool. Well, I need to watch both movies. <laughs> so this is probably... <laughs> A good time to start, since we're recording in 10 hours and I have four hours of movie plus to watch. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, all of a sudden I was, I was lying down petting Buster on his bed and just got like overwhelmed by just memories of, you know, being with an old dog and flashing mm-hmm. back to stuff and. All of a sudden, I'm just like openly weeping, and then like the dogs are all over me because every time I start crying about anything, the dogs immediately like run over to check on me. And it wasn't even sadness. I don't know. It was just like a weird purging of emotion. Uh, okay. That I- lasted for a few minutes, and then the dogs made me laugh, and then I was fine and watched the, uh, watched the third man. So I was actually going to ask you this is not a lie or a bit. Earlier today, I sat down. Uh, do you ever sit and just commune with your dog? Like, 
everyone yeah every once in a while we'll just kind of i go like forehead to forehead yep or face to face with my dogs and close my eyes and um yeah it just kind of focus on like that feeling of like it's one of the few areas in my life where like i feel true love and i know like how to define love mm-hmm. based on that feeling i get when i go face to face with one of my dogs and just kind of hold them that's i had that exact thing just maybe 20 30 minutes ago i sat down on my couch here uh, in my office and my big dog baby came up to me and she puts her her muzzle underneath my hand and lifts it up to try to get my attention and like get pets from me and she just kept stepping closer to me and i put my head down on hers and i was just, i just had this very rich experience of like this is a moment entirely full of love and appreciation for this for this creature that i get to spend time with absolutely uh it's pretty amazing their ability sometimes to know when you're hurting or when you need it mm-hmm. and so they'll they'll run in and if i'm really depressed and ripley'll start to just do ridiculous things or buster will just come in and be more like consoling and sweet and um you know especially with quarantine i didn't have physical contact with somebody for basically almost a year without like a hug or anything mm-hmm. um I don't know what state I would have been in had I not had those dogs because just complete isolation was definitely doing my head in and without them and that outlet for love and emotion, I really don't know how I would have, how I would have pulled through, um, quarantine. It's amazing because I also thought of that last night. Uh, when I was watching the end of Blade Runner, uh, or I guess the second half of it, uh, and there's a very good dog in that movie. There is a good dog. Yes. Is it real? Doesn't I, matter. Doesn't matter. <laughs> Ask him. All right, I'm going to get my notes. I just have a big folder with all my notes in it as separate documents. And uh, like I said, I did that show last night and managed to talk for three hours about those movies uh, and it had literally half a page of notes. Tell me about the show you were on. Um, I did the show. We rarely, we rarely plug anything. (laughs) Yes. I was on the show schlock and awe with uh, Lindsay, who is uh, a lovely Australian woman who lives in Melbourne. Um, And she does a double feature podcast where she lets the guest pick two features and then talks about them. And I picked All That Jazz and uh, The Red Shoes from 1948, one of Martin Scorsese's favorite movies. And uh, they were both first-time watches for her, and they're both favorites for me. So it was really cool to, like, get to share that with somebody. And talked a lot about, like, the color theory in the movies and uh, the emotion and the, the narcissism and the toxic masculinity on display in both movies. It was really great. Oh, you get a lot of that in those movies from the 40s. Yes. Yes. Especially, like, The Red Shoes focuses very much... It it would pair really well with Black Swan. Uh, So, Lindsay does this thing where uh, she asks the guest to program trailers to go before each movie as well. 
which I think is really kind of cool because you get to put in some recommendations in there. And Black Swan was one of my trailers I played with the Red Shoes because they feel like they exist in the same world. They even perform Swan Lake in part of the Red Shoes. So you get the same music cues. So what do you mean you made your own trailer? You, you, she just asks you, um, what two trailers would you play before this movie if we were uh, sitting down in a cinema uh, to do this double feature? Um, you know, what are your opening trailers and then what are your intermission trailers? I thought you were telling me that you voiced your own trailers. In a world. In a world. <laughs> where a young woman in New York City is struggling to find purpose as an actor. She finds inspiration in a role. But with that inspiration comes deceit. Natalie Portman starring alongside um, that, <laughs> that lady who has the eyeliner. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Don't help me. I can, I can, you got I know it. her you name. You can do it. Uh, Olivia, no. <clears throat> Olivia Newton-John. <laughs> she, Mila Kunis. There we go. Mila Kunis. <laughs> Mila Kunis as Lily. Uh, this is off the rails. Alright, that, that needs to stop. There's no end to that bit. <laughs> you can just keep going. I also I haven't heard of I, I haven't heard a movie trailer like that in so long that I don't have the bit down anymore. I don't have the patter. Yeah, it's it's really fallen out of favor unless they're doing a spoof of it. Uh and I feel like even that has gone by the wayside the last few years. I'm trying to think not but you don't watch trailers, so who are that's, you to who are you to judge? That's a good point. Yeah. Remember I remember when the new format for trailers first came out where it was like they presented it in um, letterbox with mm-hmm. a hashtag. I remember the first time I saw a hashtag, I was like, what the fuck is that? That's stupid. Why is that there? <laughs> and little did I know that it would become like all consuming and take over everything that we do in our lives. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the modern trailer and like, I was okay with it for a long time, like past where most people were, I feel like, but where they shoot really stylistic um, scenes that don't connect to each other and then play some sort of down-tempo cover of a, of a classic rock song uh, has really gotten to the point where it's just ridiculous anymore. Uh, I can't remember the last couple that I saw that did this, but like movies where it totally doesn't even fit. And I'm like, you could have picked any song. You don't need to do like a, a, a slowed down version of Sweet Dreams Are Made of This, you know. I, f- I feel like if I Googled, uh, you can't always get what you want, <laughs> uh-huh. that would come up in 35 trailers. All slow motion, uh-huh. all like action characters walking into an empty church with John Woo doves flying around and dust settling and then... And then it goes to action, and it's quick cut action, and then it's like a yeah. Trailers are annoying. Yes, it it kind of blows me away how infrequently there's a creative trailer. One of the best trailers I've ever seen, genuinely. Tenacious D in the Pick of Destiny. 
they just show the scene where they meet on the beach and Kyle Gass is playing guitar mm-hmm. and Jack Black does all like the and then it's just from there it's just like Duh! and then hard cut tenacious D coming out perfect great you know <laughs> but with comedy and horror I understand the problems of how do you cut a trailer that doesn't give things away but still makes people want to see the movie right and that's uh, I think we achieved trailer perfection uh, back with the original trailer for Psycho, where Alfred Hitchcock is bound and determined not to give anything away from the plot, but he wants to show you the house and the hotel where everything happens. And so he leads you personally, and he's like, ah, yes, the horrible incidents which happened here. And then you get like a couple shots and then he moves on to the next thing. It's like he's giving this little guided tour, and it's so creative and fun in that kind of like William Castle. We're going to put on a show uh, for you, kind of way. Like it's like he's leading you through it, but you know nothing about the movie, but you're totally intrigued. I've never seen the movie, but I I'm, think it's I'm no, not I'm the what what Psycho. Oh, yeah, I've seen Psycho. Oh, okay. I ta- I'm completely changing the subject without giving you any indication that I'm doing so. Thank you. So I was going to start my sentence. I've never seen the movie, but I think it's Last Days, Strange Days. With okay. that, that cut of Ray Fiennes. Where yes. It's just him. Have you ever jacked in? Yeah. <laughs> You've wanted to know what it's like to... Like, that's cool. I mean, it didn't get me to see the movie, so I guess it didn't work. <laughs> but I watched that little burner uh multiple times yeah man. um there is one other one that i wanted to talk about but it's slipping my mind right now well oh uh the trailer a, a great trailer uh that kind of oversold the movie though was um it comes at night that trailer oh, yeah. kind of fucked people's reaction to that movie yes in an interesting way it got people to see the movie but it set them up for something that it's not. And people were like pissed off with that movie. <laughs> it's a good movie, but it's yeah. not it's not like a creature feature or whatever it was sold as. Yeah. That same mo- with Mother. People had that same response with Mother. Oh, the Aronofsky mm-hmm, Mother. Because yeah. they thought it was a horror movie and it's just it's an anxiety panic attack movie. Well, I mean, that that is horrifying. Oh, no, it. Yeah, that movie's unpleasant to watch. I've only seen it once, um, and the, the woman I was dating at the time, uh, immediately afterwards, she turned to me and my friend, and she's like, that was a great fucking movie that I never want to see again. That's how, that's how she, her, her pull quote for it. Yeah, that's a good response to that. Yeah. I recently listened to George's show, and um, Best Little Horror House in Philly. And they did um, Henry, Portrait of a Serial Killer. Mm -hmm. I saw that once about 15 years ago, back when I was into, like, looking for, like, the most fucked up horror movie list kind of thing. Right. And that was one where, like, yeah, that was excellent. Probably won't ever watch it again. Uh, I'll fear Michael Rooker and respect him (laughs) now forever because uh, it's an incredible performance. But it's not something I want to jump back into. That's... But weirdly, I do want to jump back into Martyrs or Inside. You watched Inside recently. 
Yes. Inside did not uh, do it for me on repeat viewing nearly as strongly as it did the first time. Um, But Henry, I've seen, I had the same reaction when I first watched it. And then it's been programmed in a couple uh, like surprise nights or marathons that I've gone to. Uh, So I've wound up watching it multiple times and I actually find that it grows. Like I appreciate it more and I appreciate the artistry of it a lot more over time. It's like Texas Chainsaw. First time I saw Texas Chainsaw, I was like, fuck, I'm not doing that again. I'm done. I completely respect Texas Chainsaw. It's a great movie, but it's just, it's too sweaty and greasy and orange and just like hot, sticky Texas. Uh And that's what, and just like gross. Uh, That's like the main thing. It's not. And then also, the you know like the hitchhiker that they pick up in the van at the yes. start yep just like that guy's performance embodies that entire movie and it's just uncomfortable for me to watch it's great but i don't i don't enjoy it yeah i should i should give it another shot though it's been a long time since i've seen um any of the texas chainsaws i feel like uh toby hooper is a filmmaker it it's like when you watch a movie, you're trusting in the filmmaker uh, to show you the story. And he he seems like a very sweet person, but I don't know that he's trustworthy. <laughs> like, <laughs> he feels like the kid who might take the joke a little bit too far uh, and, you know, get you in trouble with the police or somebody's going to actually get hurt. Do you get that feeling with Orson Welles? Oh, Orson Welles is absolutely... Uh, in charge. This isn't even his movie. He he's even as a supporting character doesn't show up for an hour into the third man, and I still feel like this is an Orson Welles movie. He co-wrote it, right? No, no. I had my thing. Oh, weird. My uh, on my Plex, it had him listed as co-writer. So weird. No, it's not. Carol Reed. Oh, yeah. Hi, listeners. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> we forgot to introduce the show. Son of a bitch. <laughs> All right, let me cough and then we'll go. All right. <laughs> lovely. Lovely. You introduce it. Good morning, afternoon, evening, night, listeners. Uh, welcome to Nashville CA, a double feature podcast. Uh, as always, I am Josh, and with me is my very estimable uh, co-host, Sean. Hi, Sean. How dare you? <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> I, that I hold you in esteem. You're esteemable. Oh, yes, that makes sense. Estim- yeah. You said estimable. Yeah, I think I think that's how you pronounce it. I was going for a thing. I might have nailed it or biffed it. I'm not sure. You should not listen to me and my pronunciations on words. I sound like <laughs> I'm from Canada and I'm from San Diego. So who, what do I know? <laughs> Josh, you, I was big haircut last week. Uh-huh. Are you big haircut this week? Yes, I am. I finally went after months. Uh, I think I haven't had a proper haircut since the middle of the summer. Uh, so I finally went and saw my girl, Bethany, who's been taking care of my hair for the last few years. Uh, and she shaved down the sides, clear to like nothingness. I got my tall swoop going on up top. Uh, I felt very good. And 
frankly, I got to say, thirst traps work because I got a lot of followers on on uh, Twitter after posting a selfie praising her work. So cool. Yeah, that sounds like you're a carnivorous pitcher plant. <laughs> I am a honey trap. Uh, well, right on. I'm about to probably buzz my head again, maybe because I can feel like I'm pretty sure nobody said anything, but I feel a patch in the back. That mm. I, I think I've just been walking around with a patch back there for the past two weeks. Are you growing a, a Padawan tail? Like, everything else is short, and you got a little part you could braid now? God help me, no. <laughs> no, no, no. But I, my hair does, like, when I was a kid, I had the duck tail on the back, yes. you know? yep. I toe, toe blonde, toe blonde, oh god, my words. <laughs> I was a towhead with very yellow blonde hair as yeah. a child. And um did you wear baseball caps as a kid? Because I did this thing as a kid that I you just you only see kids do it. Where like you have your bangs going down as a kid, mm-hmm. and then you just stick the cap just on your head, keeping your bangs down. So I had all my hair down on my forehead with my hat on. Uh yeah, I think my hair would be off the forehead but not pulled back at all. So I had the, I looked like, uh, like a pitcher from the seventies, basically, um, with kind of the Farrah Fawcett waves coming out the sides of the hat. So the hat down on top, big waves out the side, and then kind of, uh, a hockey hair in the back going on. I had long, luxurious locks. Did you play baseball? Um, I did. Uh, little league for a few years. I actually, uh, one of my first times, I believe I was playing second base and a kid slid into me and I got Spike. Uh, like, and I, I wanted my nickname to be Spike so bad after that. Uh, <laughs> and nobody went with it. Like, thankfully, nobody went with it. Damn it. It was right there, though. Uh huh. How do you, did you approach people and, did you present that? Did you have a pitch? So like, hey, you know, or did you just say, hey, I don't know if you've heard, but other people are calling me Spike now. It was very much like uh, I've heard it around that that this is happening. And then I tried to get my mom on board and she was like, no, you're just Joshua. I'm like, OK, fine. Oh, your mom called you Joshua. Uh, as a term of endearment, generally, yeah, uh, it was, you know, it's not an all the time name. My mom calls me an asshole as a term of endearment. <laughs> Seriously, though, it's like if my mom calls me an asshole, then I know that she's like riled up, but she's joking. Or maybe I think she's jo- sometimes I think my mom is genuinely pissed off and I still think she's just joking, <laughs> <laughs> which probably <laughs> just infuriates her even more. But this is what happens when you're the third child. Um, I. Whoa, the third child. The third child. The third man. Perfect. <laughs> it's right there. It's right. Except I have two sisters, so am I the third man? Are you the third man? I'm the only man. I'm an only, only lonely child. That would be lonely. Being an only child seems tough. That's, I always had movies. Da-da-da-da-da. <laughs> So, yeah. the third man was was my pick this week. I wanted to subject you to... Oh, uh, Josh, what month is it? Oh, it's, it's November! 
And uh, yeah, Josh, we're from Australia this week, mate. <laughs> it's November. 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 We'll throw a shrimp on the barbie and we'll go out in the outback. <laughs> Talk to Charlize Theron. Oh, she's from South Africa. Yeah, God that's, damn that's it. different. Geography, you son of a bitch! You got me again. Uh, we got. We have to talk to. Who do we talk to? Heath Ledger and Nicole Kidman. Uh, Keith Urban. No, not Heath. Not Heath Ledger. Oh God, who 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 was Wolverine? Keith Jack. Keith. <laughs> Keith ja- oh my God. <laughs> Hugh Jackman! <laughs> that Keith Jack... God damn it, what's happening today? Uh, this isn't good for my brain, mate. I think the Australian heat's fried my brain. Uh, do you smell burning toast, or p- perhaps oranges right now? No, um, I, I actually smell nothing. Okay. Well, you're not having, no, a, stro- I, you're not having a stroke, but you might have no, COVID. I just Sorry. have that neutral house smell in my nose right now. Okay. Um, uh, I'm gonna stop distracting the show so we can actually start the show now. Okay. So please continue. Ah, uh, so, okay. 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 Let's all just settle down here. Uh, I do like how we had talked about taking less notes for movies, and then we launch into November with perhaps the most plot thready movies that there are in existence like it's kind of ridiculous yeah but i also think the details don't really matter as much yes they're just excuses for these protagonists to get beaten up basically because in the end both of these movies have a pretty simple storyline behind them yes it just takes a long time and waiting through a lot of bullshit to get there which um yeah josh you you chose this movie and um because i have not seen many noir movies at all i saw um maybe a handful in college with chinatown and maybe the maltese falcon and um, I, I recently learned Sunset Boulevard is considered noir, which I didn't realize, mm-hmm. but um, I'm new to the genre, and so I told you that I want to learn more about it and watch new stuff, so um, yeah, you brought this one to the table. So, The Third Man, uh, from I believe 1949, directed by Carol Reed, um, who also directed uh, Odd Man Out, I believe, right before this. Uh, is Carol Reed a man or a woman? Yeah, he is a man. I was going to, uh, there's no way that they would let a woman direct a movie and have her name on the poster in 1949, right? I don't think so. I mean, Ida Lupino uh, got one good movie in, uh, but she had to use up all of her Hollywood capital to do it, from what I understand, so. Yeah, rough, rough times still yes. are. Yes, unfortunately. Sorry, ladies. Um. But uh, written by Graham Greene, a lot of people attribute a lot of this movie to Orson Welles because he was known to be such a control freak and have his hand in every aspect of production. Um, But from what I understand, this is a Carol Reed film through and through, uh, perhaps inspired by Orson Welles, uh, what he had done before, 
you know, having seen those movies, but this movie has a tone all of its own that I feel like is entirely unique and separated from so many other things. Uh, one of the aspects of it is the music. I was, I was going to say, man, <laughs> the tone is entirely established by this music. Uh-huh. It's, in, it's pretty amazing. Yes. Who is it? Anton Karas, Karas, who played? Yes, Anton what's the, Karas. What's the instrument? It's a zither. A zither. It starts, the, the first shot of this movie shows, I rewound this like four times uh-huh. to try to figure out if the shot that they were showing us was the actual music being played. Oh, yeah. Because I, I feel like I could have seen the strings on like the bass line, like boom, 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 boom. And every time, every once in a while, I think I would spot it. Um, but then it would fall out of sync, but I don't know why I was focusing on that. This, it was, it was like 1am when I was watching this, I was in a weird headspace. Um, I've never heard of another movie. This brought to mind Ravenous, uh, because of the, the score standing in contrast to the movie itself. Yes, because I was sitting there, I was like, man. If this movie had your traditional, like, saxophone noir theme, mm-hmm. it would just have a completely different feel. And I don't know which I prefer, to be honest with uh-huh. you. This one feels so light and bubbly from this soundtrack that even though we're talking about um, a man who, in the end, uh, has been poisoning people by mm-hmm. diluting their medicine but we have this like funny uh ruba beach vibe going <laughs> with the music <laughs> the uh other thing about it that is is so unique is the the filming style which i feel like uh in the the exterior shots where they were shooting around actual vienna that was actually had been bombed out during World War II. This whole movie takes place in the aftermath, um, and the the town has been decimated, and people are still trying to live their lives there. Uh, but the uh, the culture that has grown up is one of like black markets and uh, kind of a, a police state with four different factions controlling different parts of the city, uh, and all of the shots. Not all of them. A good majority of the shots are at Dutch angles in this movie. There's hardly a a level line. Everything is like off kilter, at least a little bit, and it just makes you feel like it's a funhouse. Everything is like topsy turvy. Not enough though to really throw it off. It's like just enough of a tilt to have a quirk without being full on Battlefield Earth. Yes. And it is, uh, I think it puts you in the mindset of Holly Martins, uh, the main character played by Joseph Cotton, um, because he's a, a stranger in a strange land. The dude shows up to Vienna to work for his friend Harry Lime and has no money, has hardly any possessions with him. He's got like one bre- or one suitcase that he's brought, and he doesn't speak the language of most of the people. Like... He just was relying on his friend to give him a job, and the dude has nothing, 
and he blindly walks into this mystery. Uh, and I think it's, it keeps you off balance the whole time. Like it, like he's off balance. And I think that's, uh, kind of a testament to the, to the script going with the style of it. So very well. Is this based on a true uh, period of time for Vienna, where there were four different nations all established? Yes. So Graham Greene actually went to Vienna to, um, I guess, do some background research and found the the state of the of the city the being run. He found the sewers, which play into the the end of this movie. And beautiful he, sewers. Yes, some great so sewers. Cool. And he found um, people who were on the black market selling diluted drugs. Uh, he heard stories about that happening uh, from other people who had dealt with them. So, like, a lot of this came from, pulled from real life, unfortunately. Wow. See, I think I didn't quite realize that this was set that close to World War II. So um, I guess I probably should have realized it based on the bombed out parts. But I think I was thrown off by the music setting a tone that I was like, well, this seems like a satirical situation of a town divided into four quadrants, each one representing a different country with all these different languages. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I watched this kind of looking at more as like a, a farce than a presentation of a real situation, which is interesting that it's seemingly much more accurate than I had any idea. Yeah. It's really strange because it feels, uh, in its presentation to me, almost like a Wes Anderson movie to give it like mm -hmm. a, a modern yeah. comparison where yeah. the, like, the music is light and bubbly. It feels kind of like a storybook presentation. Like Vienna feels like, like some kind of mystical European place. And the way that he shoots the streets in it, um, it reminded me a lot of also of in brew though, the way that the town itself plays into, uh, the, the storyline and really, I think kind of imbues the whole thing with, with feeling and with a vibe. We're going to have to talk in Bruges and, and basically all the other, is it Martin McDonough, the filmmaker? I never remember which is which, cause they both have made films now, Martin and Neil. Oh, I see. Um, well he did that and he did seven psychopaths, which I love and three billboards. So like, that guy's just on such a, a hot streak for me that I'll, I'll watch anything he does. Um, have you seen Calvary? Mm, no. What's uh, that? That is a movie. So that's a John Michael McDonough, one of the two brothers. I don't remember which is which. Uh, he's the one who did The Guard. Did you see The Guard? I did, and I've meant to rewatch it because I know it has a great reputation. Yes. And maybe I had been drinking the night I watched it eight years ago or something, but I just, I, it's, it's Don Cheadle and Brendan Gleeson, right? Yes. Yep. Love both of those actors. So I should check it out. Yeah. And, uh, Calvary is Brendan Gleeson once again, um, as a priest. And it's, I think it, even in the trailer, they, give you the setup of it, which is a man comes to confession and tells him uh, 
you're, yeah, I can't remember if it's like two or three days, but like, I'm going to kill you within three days. And that's the setup for the movie. And so you have Brendan Gleeson kind of going around to this town trying to find out what happened. And it's all the, full of all these ruminations, like these McDonough movies are on life and death and what happens to you after you die and what do you believe and what do you put your faith in, um, mixed with great dialogue and a little bit of action sequence too. That sounds really good. Mm-hmm. I got to check that out. I love Brendan Gleeson because as a kid, Braveheart was like <laughs> my favorite movie. <laughs> okay. And so I thought Brendan Gleeson was like the strongest guy in the world because in that movie he's Hamish and he has, he swings giant axes and stuff. And um, I... oh, oh, by the way, uh, Lake, do you like Lake Placid? Oh, God, I haven't seen Lake Placid since, like, college or whenever it was that it came out, yeah. Yeah, I remember one of our dogs had died, like, the day before or something as a kid, and I didn't want to go, but it was my buddy's birthday party, and so I went to that, and I was 10 or 11 whenever that movie came out, and it was one of those times where it's like, it was good to go out and get out of the house and get out of that depressed state and i was just so sad um but i loved that movie i had so much fun with my friends i think it was just perfect for us like at that age yeah to just like laugh and yell at the screen i don't know it was so fun and um brennan gleason and oliver platt have a great romance in it you think the romance is uh (laughs) bill pullman and uh what's her name faucet kohler faucet <laughs> but, but, no, it's it's the Platt Gleason. Those two have such great chemistry in that movie, and yeah. they clearly want to fuck. That's awesome. I will. I should really revisit that as one of my silly monster movies. Uh, the third man starts with like a, a certification title card. I've never seen that before. It's from the the British Board of Censors. Uh, that that set that up, which is it. It's weird because it's it looks kind of classy and official. <laughs> like this, this is a certified movie. Well, it seemed like it was just the state has approved this for public viewing. Yes, is how it felt. Which you know makes sense given uh, Britain's history of. Uh, censoring their films and what the audio, the, the public can see at large and, and what they can't. Yeah. Um, so as our main character, Holly Martins, he gets summoned, right. To do work for his friend, Harry Lime. Yep. Um, did you notice that, that how precariously that ladder he's walking to the building and there's a huge ladder, mm-hmm. and it, the, the foot of the ladder is in the street, and he's walking under so many OSHA violations. <laughs> well, the, I love the fact that Holly, he doesn't even notice. I, it's like a metaphor for the rest of the movie. Like, he's walking through danger and doesn't even realize what he's doing. Isn't that an old-timey thing of bad luck to yes. go under a ladder? Yep. Yeah, I think, so, I think uh, you go under a ladder. You're supposed to throw salt over your shoulder or something. Yeah, fun little setup. I don't know. I don't really like Holly Martin's very much. 
I don't know if we're supposed to. Yes, I I kind of feel like you're not. He's um very blank. And one of the things that I love about this movie is the love story that he feels that he is going through in the movie has no chemistry whatsoever. And the woman is never into him ever. That made me really happy because I was like, this guy, he has no business. People keep telling him, like, just don't get involved. Go away. You're Mm -hmm. a fucking writer. I I kept thinking, like, why are these detectives even allowing this writer to, like, to be around any of this? This is all absurd. Like, imagine Stephen King suddenly, like, showing up on a murder scene and being like, I got some leads, boys. You're right. It's just ridiculous. And so everyone tries to tell this guy, like, go away. You don't even, you're not even from here. You don't speak any of the languages. But he's just, like, bombastically parading around like a dickhead American. Just like, <laughs> I I deserve answer. And what's up with his hair? He has a weird-ass, like, perm or something going on. I don't know what it is. It's it, It's bizarre. Joseph Cotton, it his hair looks very coarse and set in place, like shellacked in place to such an extent. That it's like a wavy uniform Brillo pad. Yeah, it, and it looks like his hair is crosshatched, almost. Like, <laughs> like a, a latticed pie top. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> like it, it was molded and created rather than, than formed on his head, even. Uh, so. After he finds out that Harry Lime has died from, I guess this guy's the, what, what do they call him? The caretaker of the building or something? The, he's a porter, supposedly. I like, I like this guy. Yes. I think he's really great performance. Um, he goes to the funeral. What are they spreading on the body with spoons? That it's some kind of ritual. I was, yeah. I've never seen that though. I feel it's like, um, the I think dust to dust, ashes to ashes kind of a thing, maybe. But the the priest and somebody else is offering it to all of the, the people who've congregated at the funeral. And uh, I like the fact that this, spoiler alert, this first funeral for Harry that we get, his girlfriend refuses to spread the ashes on him. Or the, the dust, whatever it is. Uh, she declines and then steps away from it uh, and walks off by herself, which I thought was kind of a neat note when it gets played later as well. Uh, why do you think she did that? I, she's not ready to let go of him yet. I feel like with a lot of what she says and does throughout the movie, she wants to keep a version of Harry alive. Um, and it's the good version that loved her. I mean, later she says something to the effect that he wasn't a good man, but he loved her and she loved him. And yeah, I think she still wants to live in that. She's clearly distraught and, and very uh, messed up after losing her, her lover. Her world kind of gets destroyed. Yeah. <laughs> in yeah. this movie three times. Yeah. Uh, with his first fake death, then when she finds out what a piece of human scum he is, mm-hmm. and then with his real death. Not to mention the fact that her 
her papers for living in the city uh, are forged, that Harry got them forged, and the police use that as leverage against her to try to give up information about Harry. And they're going to put her in police custody and repatriate her to Czechoslovakia or wherever it was that she was from originally, uh, even though she wants to live as a free woman in, in the international part of the city. I'm really shocked that this movie has the ending that it does, and mm. I'm very happy that it does. Uh-huh. Because a movie from the 40s, I absolutely expect the man-written, man-directed movie to have the damsel in distress fall into our hero's arms at the end. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I like that this one's just like, this lady is getting fucked over left, right, and center. and But she's still going to go her own way by the end of things. And Holly, who has, uh, he's kind of creating this great romance between the two of them in that only exists in his mind uh did go to bat for her he's the only person who actively tried to help her but it was also by betraying one of his oldest friends he and harry have been friends for 20 years and he still not only does he lead the police to harry he's the one who does harry in in the end and she also if she was ever interested in Holly, she wouldn't be because he betrayed Harry and she loved the idea of Harry so much. And so I don't think that she could ever get over that. It's, yeah, and it's also, I think, clear to her that maybe part of him wants to save her and help her, but then the other half is like, yeah, but what's my end? Yes. I get I get a romance out of this, right? Like yep. this is the this is the deal we're making. I help you and in exchange you pay me back by having sex with me. Yep. Is what's in this guy's head. And he totally uh talking about Wes Anderson, he reminds me of the Eli Cash character from The Royal Tenenbaums who writes goofy western novels. Uh we're told over and over again basically in this that not only does Holly uh, is he a writer and he's out of his depth? He's not that good of a writer. He writes <laughs> stupid pulp novels. Uh, and I love the the thread where he gets to go talk to this um, high-minded society of intellectuals, and he is totally unprepared for it. He's <laughs> such kind of a dunce and turns them all off when they ask him questions about James Joyce, and he's like, who? What? <laughs> I love that. Those people cut his bullshit off like three seconds into his panel. They're just like, no, no, no. There's no information we had here. This was a waste of time. Come on, dear. Let's go. Yeah. Um, They're asking him existential questions and he writes novels about cowboys. I love the soldier who, when he's talking to uh, Calloway Mm -hmm. or Callahan, as the joke goes, um, and he's just being a dick. I don't remember what leads to him getting... He tries to punch Callahan or Calloway. Yes. Anyways, I love the soldier. Pops him in the mouth, knocks him down, and then picks him up and goes, you know, I really love your books. <laughs> <laughs> that that character especially feels very modern to me. Like, it, it really... I think you're used to, like, seeing movies from this period that are kind of stodgy and old and everybody is, like, very traditional. And this character, who, yeah, he's a British uh, military policeman, 
but he does. He loves he loves these goofy Western novels that Holly writes, and he's always kind of in the background asking him questions about them and telling him, oh, I read some more of this one. I really like the main character and stuff. It's really kind of sweet. He's so cheerful for a giant man who's like an enforcer. Yeah. Um, yeah, what's the next scene you got? Um, oh, when, uh, after Holly has been sent to the uh, hotel, uh, basically Major Calloway uh, has told him, like, hey, we will book a flight for you back to the U.S. We'll get you out of here. Um, this is no place for you. And then when Holly goes to the hotel, somehow one of Harry Lyme's friends already knows that he's going to be there. Uh, and so he gets a call from Baron Kurtz, which, uh, not just that soldier, I do love this cast of characters around him. These dudes that he meets that are Harry's friends are some of the shadiest motherfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> They're all, like, sketchy as hell. They seem, like, so nervous and, like, just a bunch of weird dudes. Just dripping with grease. Yes. <laughs> and this is where we kind of get the uh, uh, the the titular third man question, because Harry died on the street right outside of his own uh, apartment building. And we're told that at first that two men carried him out of the street and he was dead instantly. And then we get another version of the story where three men carried him out of the street. And Holly believes the third man had something to do with his actual death and that it wasn't an accident. Um, and the funny thing is, we never get resolution on this. How so? As to who the third man actually is? Uh, well, so... The, the, did they disguise whoever's body? I don't remember the guy's name. They disguised that as Harry, and that's the guy who got hit in the street? Was anyone hit in the street, or is this all a ruse? Well, I think it's all a ruse. I think... Um... So the man that they disguise is Joseph Harbin, who was Harry's supplier for penicillin. He was stealing it from the hospital. Um, Harry would uh, cut the penicillin down and then sell it uh, on the black market. So not only is he making a profit by selling stolen goods, but he's also cutting the efficacy of the penicillin and unintentionally, I hope, poisoning people. But he still does it, and he and he continued to do it. Um, what, what is meningitis? Is that it says basically? It sounds like people's brains were fried by meningitis because the penicillin was not potent enough. Yes, um, I know that meningitis uh, attacks the the nerves. It's a nerve disease, um, and there's different variations on it. But I think, unfortunately, it's one of those that does physically attack the brain as well, and. Um, uh, kind of like uh, Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease can actually leave holes in your brain. Jeez. Uh, oh, so yeah, later when they go to that kids ward, again, it's the it's kind of like the just the atonal nature of, of certain things of this movie. Uh, they don't show any of the kids, but still, just the idea that they're walking him around 
showing him the victims mm-hmm. of this con that Harry has and their children. This is extremely dark. Yes. But it's presented kind of fun. And uh, the the way that they choose to shoot it, you see a lot of Holly's reaction to the to the sick children. Uh, Major Calloway, or Sergeant Cal- Calloway, is telling him, everyone in this ward is a victim of Harry. And uh, instead of showing the kids, they show that uh, there's like a stuffed bear laying face down on the floor next to one of the the cribs. Um, and it's just one of those little details that's like heartbreaking when you realize the implication of it, that like these kids are destined for a very painful, very short lives because of what Harry did for profiteering. Yeah. Well, in the Ferris wheel, we'll get Harry's mm-hmm. philosophy and it's <laughs> pretty fucking disgusting. Yes. Um, at one point, one of Harry's friends uh, says, um, Holly says, he invited me to stay, but he died. And the guy goes, goodness, that's awkward. <laughs> he goes, is that, is that how you respond to news of death? Right. It's, uh, and everybody, the more Holly pushes them, they're like, they're happy that Harry's dead. They're like, no, he's better off dead. We're better off that he's dead. Everybody goes from either being glib to being actively happy that Harry's not in the picture anymore. <laughs> and Holly's the only one who wants to dredge up the, the truth. This guy's just like a, a clear blight on humanity. Mm-hmm. And would this writer just leave things be? Please. <laughs> just leave it alone. This guy also has um, real bored-to-death energy. Did you watch that show? Oh, yeah, yeah. Just like an incompetent writer who decides he's going to now be a detective and pursue cases and stuff. Yep. I loved Bored to Death. I really wish it would have gotten at least a couple episodes to to find that closure or whatever. Yeah. Because it, it ends on kind of a weird note at the end of the third season. Um, but I should I don't know what else Jonathan Ames has written. I'd like to check out his stuff. I, I know he's still been active. Yeah. Um. God, that, uh, the sequence when he gets, who is it, Jim Jarmusch's bicycle? And he's riding it around the loft, like, just in big circles? <laughs> yeah. It's, I'm like, that's such a stupid inside baseball kind of joke. Like, it, it's hitting such a niche, and I really love that. I didn't get that joke at all, because I've never seen a Jim Jarmusch movie. Ah, ooh, that's another, that's a deep well to plumb, and I think you would like that guy. Like, I think you would enjoy what he does. Um, Holly goes to the theater and meets Anna, Harry's girlfriend, uh, that he saw at the funeral. She wonders to him if Harry's death is actually an accident. And I really love the, when she invites him backstage uh, after the play, she's an actress in this play, and she tells him where to sit. And then the the space is so tiny. I don't even know how they shot this because it feels like it's in a closet. Um, every time anybody moves in the space, uh, Holly has to get up and move out of the way. And you're just like, Holly's in the way. He's always <laughs> in the way. He's physically 
fucking up these people's lives right now who just want to get their makeup off and get home uh, before like, and I think they're still doing blackout drills through part of it. And uh, everyone needs to hide. And it's like, these people just want to live their lives. And here comes this big, dumb American (laughs) sticking his nose in where it doesn't belong. You know how little this woman cares for Holly? She tells him that instead of flowers, some of the British men throw packages of tea mm-hmm. up on stage after the show. And she, she goes, oh, would you like some tea? And then she goes and like, oh, wait, there's still some left in the pot. She pours him just like old tea that's yep. probably been there the entire show. So just gives him a cup of cold tea. Here you go, dickhead. <laughs> <laughs> I like the fact that she tells him uh, about the tea in that she can either drink it or she can sell it. It's a luxury item in post-war Vienna. And so it's either bringing something very nice to her life and useful, or it's bringing her money that she needs to live uh, so that these guys give her the tea instead of flowers. Um, And we see people gifting cigarettes a lot throughout the movie as well. And after she explicitly tells him this, what does Holly do? He goes and buys her flowers and brings them <laughs> to her. Like, he's such I, an idiot. I didn't pick up on that. That's awesome. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> that did shock me later on in the movie when a guy says to, what's, I'm sorry, what's her name? Uh, Anna. And who's she played by? Because I, I really like her performance and we haven't mentioned her name yet. Um, uh, Ada or Alita uh, Valley. She just goes by Valley. V-A-L-L-I. Wow. She's really good in this. Um, I love when later the guy offers her a cigarette and she takes one and he goes, ah, keep the pack. Yes. That's, that dude is either loaded rich or I don't know. Cause I smoked a lot of cigarettes, but I never just gave somebody a pack. Actually, you know what? There were a couple times where I just like on a whim be like, I'm quitting cigarettes right now. And I just hand my pack to someone mm-hmm. outside. So I have done that. I but, quit cigarettes probably 40 times before <laughs> I quit cigarettes. Right. Uh, but in, I mean, this is like a prison economy, right? Where these things like, yeah. like chocolate, tea, cigarettes, they're, they are hot commodities, especially on the black market. The, the movie opens and we see people selling items on the black market. Um, we see somebody like... I think opening up a trench coat, we should see somebody selling uh, watches. Uh, and I think the implication is that they got them off of dead bodies uh, because we see like a body floating in a reservoir at one point. And it really is like the weird push pull between <laughs> the very chipper music for this movie and the, the darkness of the setting is it's amazing. And I feel like the music is Holly. The music is like this American who's like, yes, I'm going to come and fix everything yes. and it's all fine. Um, he, I'm on vacation. Do, 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 yes. Do. Uh, I also saw somebody on Letterboxd um, state that it's like the band The Smiths. So you have Morrissey whining about his love life um, and how nobody appreciates him. And then you have Johnny Marr coming in with his jangly guitar going, shut up, idiot. <laughs> I was like, it's it's pretty good. <laughs> That's funny. Um, <laughs> as they're walking around, he and he and um, oh god, I already forgot her name. Anna. <laughs> Fuck. 
<laughs> yeah, thank you. Jesus Christ, brain. Um, throughout this movie, he has one of the most bizarre costume choices I've ever seen, mm-hmm. and it perplexed me and infuriated me and enraptured me. <laughs> he has a sweater vest on with a tie underneath it, but he pulls the tie up to leave like a three-inch loop that's yes. just constantly sticking off of his chest. And he looks like a little kid that's like needs to tuck his shirt in. Yeah. When you see him in profile, the way his tie sticks out, he looks like Dilbert <laughs> like so or something. Dumb. <laughs> it like, just looks like it's so stupid. And it's maybe it was like a fashion thing that only lasted during the <laughs> six month or one year production of this movie. I've never seen it. And it just looks but again, it goes to Holly just being bumbling. Yeah. He just he looks like a fool. Yeah, it's and he's constant. I think you're right on with the like he looks like a kid. Um Holly and Harry knew each other from school and so when Holly reminisces uh it's only about school days. It, like he talks about Harry getting them out of tests and stuff like that um and knowing how to crib notes and getting in trouble with like the headmaster kind of thing. And it, I think Holly has never grown up. He's like, he's got no adult life skills. Um, the fact that when the, when Calloway is like, okay, we'll get you on a flight out of here. Here's money for a couple days. It's specifically, um, uh, their military money, the British military money which is not accepted everywhere, especially in the international zone. So he's got play money. He refers to it as like play money at one point. He's just this idiot, this kid who is, like you said, bumbling around and sticking his nose in where it doesn't need to be. And he's not even good at it. He's not like MacGyver showing up or Columbo where, you know, it's going to lead to like some great thing. He ultimately solves the mystery kind of accidentally and makes things worse for everybody the whole way through. I don't even know if he solves it or if Harry later just decides to show himself for I don't even know what reason. We'll we'll get to it. Yeah. Um so he goes back um to the the guy who's taking care of the building. Um oh god, that sentence edit <laughs> so he goes back to the building and he tells the the old man that he wants to get the cops involved because there's two different stories and this is where like nobody wants this guy around everyone's just like pleading with him to leave and he ends up getting this old man murdered yeah. because of this yes um, and the so what did you think about the choice the the second or third time that he goes to visit the man um, we meet presumably that man's son, his young son, who's probably five. Um, we see his ball bounce into the room and then he comes in and he's this very, uh, he, he looks like an Austrian painting of a little boy with chubby cheeks. They'd probably be (laughs) super rosy. He's got a little cap on. You see this kid in Christmas advertising all the time. Yes. Yes. He's like a little urchin child and he's so cute. And when he sees the the superintendent, he says, Papa, Papa, 
and he's like so happy about his, you know, to talk to his dad. And then later, after we learn that, that the superintendent uh, has been killed, you see that kid on the street and he just keeps saying, Papa, Papa. And it's so sad. <laughs> like, so did you have subs, subtitles? Yes. For yeah. any of, you did? Yes, I did. Because I the, did not. The British accents uh, and the all the German accents were kind of hard to to swallow. No, but did it translate when they're speaking in French or German? No. Oh, okay. Because we might have watched like a completely different experience had that been the case. No, it literally will say like speaking German. Okay. Yeah. So because this kid, yeah, later on. <laughs> It sounds like he's just screaming murderer, murderer, yeah. <laughs> over and over. Yes. Uh, he, I like what... Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, he, um, the, the small child winds up leading all of the, the townsfolk on a chase hunting down Holly because they think he had something to do with the porter's death or the superintendent's death, which he did by dragging the poor man back into it when he didn't want to be a part of it. Uh, but he didn't actively kill the guy. Um, he goes to Dr. Winkle. And again, Holly's a fucking idiot because he doesn't understand the German W. Yes. So he calls him, he continually calls him Winkle <laughs> after getting created. Um, Dr. Winkle's has a little dog that was barking, but I didn't understand it. So, because uh, I don't, I don't speak that language. So earlier, Kurtz was holding that. Oh, I get it. Oh, damn it. <laughs> Son of a bitch! <laughs> you're just gonna, you're just gonna steamroll right past that bad joke. I was like, yeah, you don't speak dog. That's fine. Of all people, you should speak dog. I speak English, dog. <laughs> oh, that's. Sometimes if you get like a dog from Manchester, that's too tough. And then I need <laughs> subtitles for that dog. God, now, have you ever um, heard people uh, from foreign countries talk about the sounds that animals make? And they make different sounds in different countries? It's the weirdest thing. Because you're like, woof should just be woof. But the people, if you ask someone to say it, they'll say a different word. And it, it kind of blows my mind. Do you know the comedian Brian Regan? Yes. Yeah. He has a great bit back in the day where... I read all these kids' books, you know. Let me ask you something. Does the owl go who or does it go hoot? <laughs> half the books say one, half the books say the other. Let me tell you something. Owls don't go hoot, okay? Has anyone ever heard an owl go hoot? Never in the history of the animal kingdom has an owl enunciated like that, ever. <laughs> Toss those books in the trash can. They didn't do their research. <laughs> Who's deciding how they go, you know? They're all over the place with dogs. The dog says bark. The dog says rough. The dog says woof. The dog says bow wow. That's the one that intrigues me. Who the hell ever heard a dog and could have possibly interpreted it that way? Oh, oh, did you just hear Bow Wow? <laughs> I distinctly heard a Bow Wow. Oh, oh, there it is again, Bow Wow. You're not hearing that? You're not hearing a Bow Wow? 
Wow, you're not hearing any of that. I'm not hearing that. Not that, I don't think. Brian is one of, I need to, I don't, I don't listen to much stand-up comedy. Yeah. But he's one of my favorites, especially for a guy that works clean. Yep. No swearing, no, no dirty, it just, it just complete goofball energy. He's so funny. I, I feel like um, his stuff, even from the 90s, probably really holds up because of that, because it is just uh, absurd. Cup of dirt? Yeah. That, like... Cup of dirt will always hold up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, check out Brian Regan if you're looking for excellent, just fun comedian. Um, after this, they're at the bar. Holly and Anna are. <laughs> and so a bunch of cops walk in. And Holly badgers him. was like, hey, who are you going to go on after us this time? <laughs> Anna rolls her eyes so hard at this point. I'm just like, Jesus, dude, would you calm down? Uh-huh. Fuck. It's <laughs> so annoying. The uh there's another man, Popescu, who is there. Uh who is supposedly the second man who helped carry the body. There's also this conflicting thing of like the person who hit Harry, supposedly, was his own driver. The only witnesses were like his two best friends, and then his doctor walked past. It's like the shadiest thing that you could think of um for it so popescu was supposedly there that night and once again holly is told like uh hey stay out of this i did really like the the back and forth at this point because it feels like holly is really starting to get in danger and the way that the the editing cuts from like the wide shots to these uh, angled close-ups when like a little bit of information is revealed that kind of opens up another pathway in the story for Holly to hunt down uh, just felt dangerous. It felt like he was being threatened and Holly seems fairly oblivious to what's to what's say, happening. This man never once perceived when people told him to go away or to not get involved. He never once perceived that as a threat to him. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he acts like uh, he's above everything, and I guess it's a good metaphor for the Americans coming in uh, at the end of World War II and like, hey, guy, look what we did! <laughs> we won! <laughs> we did everything! That's, yeah, see you later, right? Bye! Yep. <laughs> Have uh, fun with your, with your continent. Yeah, right? Um. After Holly, they have a bunch of bad guys have a meeting on a bridge. Yes, and I just wrote. I don't remember what the music was, but I just wrote, "Whoever's playing this music is doing a lot of heavy lifting." <laughs> um, then we. This is where we now get the the old man, the caretaker being murdered. Mm-hmm. We get the scene out in the street with Holly and and the kid calls him a murderer, so they run off. Um, at this point. The car from Sunset Boulevard shows up <laughs> where they tell Holly he has to get in the car. Yep. And it's that bizarre car where it's like, it looks like, did you watch Wacky Races as okay, a kid? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it looks like a Wacky Racers car. Yeah, I can see that. Like something Dick Dastardly would drive <laughs> with Muttley. Yep. 
Well, how did how did Muttley laugh? Uh, you were pretty close. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that was too loud. No, that's gonna be rough. <laughs> Let's not do that. It's not good on that <laughs> corridor. Uh, I do like the. You don't know whose car he's getting into or why, and Holly stupidly thinks that he can go to the police station in this car. Like the driver is already there for him to take him to a destination. And Holly's like, you didn't even ask where I wanted to go when the car takes off. He treats like, oh, great. You hired me a personal taxi. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Perfect. He, he thinks everything is just for him. Things just fall into my lap like this for my entire life. This is great. Yep. <laughs> and it, the car, I really like how uh, it builds in this scene through tearing through this town, like down these wet streets and like the car is like he's doing like Tokyo drifting around corners and stuff practically. Um, and uh, Holly suddenly realizes that he might be in danger and he's like, I don't, I don't know anything. Don't hurt me. Uh, and then when the car gets to its destination, it's the lecture that Holly is supposed to give to the intellectual society. Uh, and <laughs> he's been so worried about nothing, which is just another thread of, He's always kind of pointed in the wrong direction. Um, we do get the really cool thing, I think, at the end. The one time Holly really kind of shows that he's on top of anything is at the end of the lecture when I think it's Popescu comes in and he's like, so what are you working on? And Holly says, uh, a crime novel called The Third Man. It's about a man investigating his best friend's death, you know. It's like this he, was one of the few times he showed any indication of being a savvy, competent, detective-esque character. Yes. Uh, he's just, he's bullheaded, and he's going to push his way through it. Um, and he thinks he's going to clear Harry's name, because there's all these rumors flying around about him. But I think the next scene is when he talks to Calloway again. And Calloway, like, lays out, no, here's the crime syndicate that was stealing medicine from sick people and then selling poisoned medicine to other sick people. <laughs> that, yes, the truth has been revealed now. Yeah. Because Holly's trying to, he's trying to convince himself that his friend maybe couldn't have done this or maybe it's not so bad as what people say or something, you know. Yep. Um, uh, Holly goes to say goodbye to Anna because after, after learning the truth, he's dejected and he's like decided that he's not going to pursue it anymore. He thinks he's going to go home, uh, which the whole last act of this movie is Holly deciding to go home over and over again. Um, he's so wishy-washy. He's, he's kind of a weenie. Um, but there is a really awesome shot where we start inside Anna's apartment and the camera goes into the, the flowers on the flower box outside her window and the lens becomes obscured. And when it clears again, it's coming out through trees uh, outside. So it's that, like this cool match cut. That edit was beautifully hidden. Mm -hmm. I, that, that really blew me away that they were able to pull that off without, I didn't notice a dissolve. Or it really matched beautifully. There's another really cool shot as I don't remember Holly's running away from 
that when he's running away from the people, I don't remember, but there's a spiral staircase, mm-hmm. and we we should we look up the spiral sca- uh, staircase from the bottom. Yeah, and that shot looks so cool. Also, Holly at one point runs through somebody's apartment, and there's a cockatiel in there. Yeah, and I just don't understand bird people. No, who who wants that in their house? Especially like. That's not just a bird. That's like a dinosaur bird. That's they not... scream. <laughs> yes. My friend had, his parents had two of them. And they were in this cage. And they hated everything. Of course, because they're in a cage. I don't blame them. Mm-hmm. But they would just like scream during the night. And I only hung out there a few times. I was like, this is preposterous. This is, <laughs> what are we doing here, guys? You're volunteering to live with this creature who, who hates you. My sister's French bulldog is here right now. And even that, I'm like, how do you put up with this dog snoring and breathing? One, these dogs should not be bred in the first place. But why do you want this in your life? This expensive thing that's so inbred that they're guaranteed to be unhealthy. And I don't think they're cute. Just go go to a shelter, people. Go go get a mutt dog. You'll be so happy. Uh, Rescue trash cats. That's where all mine come from. They're great. <laughs> um, I do really like the aspect of. So not only is this kind of like a formative film noir, it is also deconstructing that because Holly is not on top of the investigation. He's not really an honorable man who's trying to do it to restore order to the world as he sees it. Um, he is this kind of big dum dum lumbering around. But also, in a normal film noir, and as we'll see later in uh, Blade Runner, your protagonist gets beat up a lot. It's one of the, it's like, to go along with the mental gymnastics they're going through, they often get tied to chairs and tortured and beaten up. Um, Very James Bond-like. It's where a lot of those seeds come from. And in this movie, what happens to Holly? He gets bitten on the finger from a bird. (laughs) And that's, that's, he's got this big bandage on it for the rest of the movie. That's such a great point. Cause I didn't quite know he doesn't, he gets punched in the face. Uh huh. And then I guess towards the end with, um, no, he doesn't really ever go through much physical at all. Does he? No. The, the fact that he, and he tells people yes. that I got a cockatiel bit my finger. <laughs> And he, at one point, Anna asks him, and he's like, a bird? It, yeah, never mind. It's, <laughs> he realizes how stupid it is, but it is like, it's, and it's not just a bandage. It's got like a bow tied around his finger, so it's very noticeable in every shot, like what a dork he is. Is this the point where now um, Harry decides to come out of the woodwork? Yes, we see which... Uh, Orson Welles talked about how this was one of his, um, the best roles he was given because it's a star role. He's like the whole, the first two acts of the movie are people talking about Harry and what a good guy he was, what a bad guy he was, what a larger than life guy he was. He had his fingers in all these pies. He was running this criminal syndicate, yada, yada, yada. And then you meet Harry. So you already have all of this built up 
when Orson Welles hasn't done a thing yet. He hasn't had to portray any of that. But when you see him and the light comes on and splashes across his face, and then he kind of gives a little smirk. And you're like, oh shit, it's Harry Lime! He's here! He's great. I, I'll be honest, I didn't know Orson Welles acted. Oh, okay. I just thought he was a director. Um, and the only thing I've seen of his, I believe, is Citizen Kane. Mm-hmm. And it's it's fine. I understand how great it was for the time and groundbreaking and the things that they did set precedence for the future. Mm-hmm. But as far as a viewing experience in its own merit today, it, it, it's all right. <laughs> I don't know. I don't. I don't think it's that great. You know. Okay. Well. Uh oh. We'll agree to disagree. You're mad. We'll oh, agree no. to disagree on that. I know your stance on it, and it's fine. Uh, I haven't. I haven't seen it since I was like 20 years old, though. So okay. I'm like a different human being now. Yes, that's fair. Um, I plan to rewatch Jimmy Stewart. It's a Wonderful Life because I was like anti that movie growing up just because I don't know. It's just like, oh, that's so lame. Every time a bell rings, a teacher, that's so stupid. But now I think I'll tune directly. It's it's a dark movie. It is a very dark movie. But I think now as an adult, I'll just be like, oh, my God. (laughs) I I relate so hard with this guy, you know? Yep. It's, uh, that is a movie that has only grown in my estimation over the years, um, because it hits harder as an adult who has made compromises, uh, and to live in society. Uh, yeah. Well, I I, I can't wait for you to watch that real quick scheduling. Um, two weeks from now, we're planning to watch planes, trains, and automobiles because that's a movie I've only seen one time and I've just really wanted to rewatch it and watch it around Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. Should we link that in with wonderful life? I don't, do you want to do a Christmas episode? What, I, what I think are you we feeling? I think we do um, Christmas stuff later. Uh, I would like to do home for the holidays as the other uh, one for, for a Thanksgiving one. We can do a theme. I've never seen it, but you heard it here first folks. It's set in stone two weeks from now. Home for the holidays and planes, trains, and automobiles. Beautiful. Look at that. Easy peasy. Done. <laughs> it's uh, not like it normally is where we have a three-hour fight that ends in a lot of tears. <laughs> the uh, Holly chases Harry through the streets of Vienna. And what do you think about the, the fact that you see Harry for a moment and then it's just the shadows. He's chasing the shadows through the streets. It's not even the actual man. He's like chasing the idea of him, basically. There's so many cool shots in the last 30 minutes of this movie mm-hmm. that use shadow and silhouette and long hallways. And then Harry gets lit by something and you see him or you see his shadow down at the end of this long hallway or in this super long tunnel sewer you just see this little black figure way down there at the other end mm-hmm. i the cinematography is so on point um throughout this movie but i, I think especially during these the editing uh, too the editing feels pretty modern in those chase scenes yes the uh i feel like 
you start off, you're, you're kind of boxed in. Whenever you see a street, you never actually get to see the end of the road. It's always like goes around a corner or dead ends into a building and stuff like that. And then when the movie opens up in this last third, uh, you start seeing the vanishing point of the road, like as uh, uh, Harry is running down it or in those tunnels, especially just a blinding white light at the end. um, And everything is very centrally placed. uh, And it's, it, it kind of drags you along. I really like during these chase scenes that, uh, and normally I want a movie to be clear about the geography of where everybody is. And this, I feel like they purposefully did not set that up. They confuse you and it feels like you're lost in a maze, but in a, you're still in skillful hands the whole time. Like it's purposefully done. I felt relieved when this movie opened up because I, I think I was feeling that confinement. And so getting shots where we do get these open-ended tunnels going into like the white void and stuff. Something about that was very satisfying to finally open that door. Yeah. Um, if you like to know where everyone is at all times, you should not see the movie free fire. <laughs> it's uh, directed by uh, the guy that did kill list Ben Wheatley. Yes. I, uh, I'm pretty sure it's Ben Wheatley movie. I saw in theater. There's fun performances and it shot well and everything. But my God, that movie just needed an establishing shot. Just every now and then a zoomed out shot where we just as the audience understand what these characters sight lines are, because it's all it's just a gunfight in a warehouse. That's the entire movie is a gunfight in a warehouse. And so location of characters when they're hiding behind cover and stuff is so important to understand who could potentially shoot who or whatever. And that movie never quite lays out that geography and I think really suffers for it. I tried to rewatch it and I was just like, first watch in theater was fun. My rewatch was like, I, this is too, too convoluted, like just too mishmashy and I don't have any feel for it. That's really sad and i wonder if that's a a ben wheatley problem that he frequently uses to his advantage um it, you know if it's like a bug that winds up being a feature because i feel like in kill list and uh in the earth there's very confounding spatial editing especially in the climaxes of both of those movies but it plays into the movie itself as characters are chasing each other around and you're not quite sure. Like, but those are, those are horror movies rather than action movies. And I feel like they should be going after different targets. Kill list is so badass. We should do kill list and wicker man or something like that. Something oh yeah. Just full on folk horror. Um, I hate to step outside the, the show for a second here. But Elizabeth is cooking something in the kitchen, and it smells heavenly in my house right now. Good for you. Yeah. Good for you. I wish to share this with everybody. It's been a cold snap here in Tennessee, and it smells like soup or roast or something delicious. I still just have a neutral house smell. I smell nothing. I'm sorry. It should smell like bread there. You know what? I bet smell bad. 
when they exhumed the body of whoever was buried, and we find out that it was that guy's name that you said before. Uh, Harbin, or Habern, or something, Joseph. Mm. Um, who, Good old Joe. Who uh, Harry had buried in his, his plot at the cemetery. It's um, never quite... Do we find out how did Harry murder this guy just to just to have a body? I feel like he did, or maybe some altercation happened, and then they came up with this story um, as it gave Harry a convenient way out. Uh, and I don't know how someone else gets mistaken for Orson Welles, uh, even like at a glance or in passing. Orson Welles, very distinctive-looking gentleman, also kind of thick, very broad-shouldered, and fills out that that trench coat he's wearing. Um, I mean, there's a reason he plays. He played Falstaff um, in the, the Shakespeare plays. Like he is this larger-than-life figure, uh, and he always if had you, kind of a weight to him. If you hit Orson Welles with your car, it'd be like hitting a moose. Yes. Your car would be totaled, and he would walk away. <laughs> Uh, also, I don't know. I want to work something about, um, Orson Welles providing the, uh, the voice for the Transformers movie, uh, in here, but I don't what? remember the Transformers movie well enough. He, he was, um, Optimus Prime. No, uh, Omicron, I believe the, like the planet, uh, in the, <laughs> Orson the... Welles was a planet. Yes. That was his last role. He was the... Well, he did exude a lot of gravitas. Ah! Nailed it. Thank you for bringing it back around. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, uh, how does Harry... How does this meeting set up with where they end up on the Ferris wheel? Um, Holly shows up at Vinkel's place and says, I want to talk to Harry. I know he's in there. I know you guys know where he is. Uh, they invite Holly inside. And Holly, uh, for once, shows a little bit of smarts. And he's like, no, I'm not going to go inside your place where nobody knows where I am. Uh, I want to do this out in the open. And this scene is, it's the most famous scene in the movie. It's a scene that has been lifted and remixed into other things a lot. Um, Most notably for me into uh the first season of Mr. Robot uh the first meeting of uh the the main character and i believe the, the titular mister from from the show um they use like the same setting and the same uh little speech pattern that he gives at the end so i i love this scene i think it's well, just for me, it's a showcase for me the movie Remo Williams, The Adventure Begin, starring our wonderful friend, Fred Ward, friend uh-huh. of the show. <laughs> There's a great Ferris wheel scene. I'm going to make you watch that movie sometime. I, I think I'll be happy to. I, uh, it's just, it's, it's so good. It's Fred Ward. What, what more do you want? Very little, actually. <laughs> so true. All I need is a, is a charming person on screen for a while. Like... <laughs> Just warm me uh, yeah, with your so smile. I I think Orson Welles is really great in this movie, especially in this scene where he talks about as they go higher and higher, he opens the door on the Ferris wheel, which in itself is a terrifying, threatening thing. 
I love that Holly like grabs onto a pole mm-hmm. or something because he's like, I'm not gonna let this guy sneaky grab me and push me off. Right. So, and this is where he talks about basically like you see all those people that look like ants down there, all those dots. What if I gave you twenty thousand dollars per dot that stops moving? How many dots would you be cool with? Yep. It's like, but those aren't dots. <laughs> those are people with stories and family. <laughs> you fucking sociopath. Yeah, he compares himself to a corporation or a country. He's like, they, they talk about uh, shareholders and, and the populace in the same way. Like, why, why shouldn't I? Uh, you know, this does, his attitude here does kind of get mirrored in Blade Runner. Yes. By the the head dude. Uh Wallace? The, yes. Yeah. Um You're right. Orson Welles is great in this scene. He controls this whole scene. I mean, everybody has been pushing Holly around the the whole movie without Holly realizing it. Um here Holly feels like he should be on solid ground for the first time with his friend and he's not but he does it in such a charming disarming way he never overtly threatens him but he's terrorizing him the whole time he is like really holding holly's feet to the fire and um he's like essentially saying i want you to come join me in my criminal exploits if not maybe you'll wind up in a riverbank somewhere you know like you might fall out of this uh, nobody will look for the bullet hole if after you hit the ground from this height. Uh, I, I love the rhythm of this scene because it starts with Holly getting in, they close the door and you're safe. And we only, it seems like we get one rotation, one complete rotation of the Ferris wheel. Mm-hmm. And the continuity must have been a pain in the ass <laughs> to keep that in check, but they do. Yeah. And so you follow it and, you know, the threat builds once they get about a quarter of the way, the door opens. And the threat's at its absolute peak when they're at the top. And then that's when he talks about, like, from up here, no one would even think to, like, check out your body. Mm -hmm. And then you feel the threat start to slowly fade as then, like, they start to come back down. And Orson Welles' demeanor changes a little and the door gets closed. And it's just, like, a really cool wave that you ride on this one rotation, this one revolution around the Ferris wheel. Uh... The most upsetting thing about this scene, I feel like, is how offhandedly Harry talks about Anna. Like, Anna is so in love with him and is so devastated at the loss of him, and Harry just kind of shrugs his shoulders at her plight. Yeah, he doesn't give a shit. Yeah, it's really like, we, we've already, like, I had come to accept the fact that he would screw Holly over because he already kind of has, but you build this thing up in, in your mind that there was this relationship between Anna and Harry and he kind of dashes that, uh, which makes you wonder what she saw in him or sees in him. Well, un- unfortunately sociopaths can be pretty good manipulators in relationships and you pretty good at stringing people along I, you know we've all had friends who are in toxic bad relationships but their partner knows how to push their buttons to keep them strung along or to keep them needing their mm. perception of love or whatever 
and it's just a completely toxic relationship if if that person were able to take a step back and see how they're being treated without all of the walls and conditioning that they have in their mind. I also feel like the the casting of uh, Orson Welles here, which apparently was kind of controversial at the time and very tough, um, because Orson Welles is he was a prickly dude, and um, I think very much like Harry, when he turned his charm on you, you you would feel great and feel very special and important, and the rest of the time you could go fuck yourself, and. That's kind of what he does in real life. And this is, I believe, six years after Citizen Kane. Um, and that's been six years of Orson Welles essentially burning professional bridges, despite what a genius wonderkind everybody thought he was. So to put him in this role of somebody who is remembered as being very charming and having a lot of skills and being able to do magic tricks and stuff. Uh, but really is kind of a bastard at heart, I think is that's spot on casting. Yeah, it just for me, it just shows again, like you can be the most talented person in the world. But if you're an asshole, I most many, many people will not want you a part of their business or a part of their team. It's like when you play sports and you got. 20 kids who are all there for each other and then one or two who are selfish little pricks and it's you know one rotten apple really can spoil the bunch mm -hmm. and so it you know treating people respect kindness it gets so far and it sucks when people power trip like orson wells or like um you know how i get uh marlon brando yes has like yes. very orson wells vibe in yep. my mind. I can definitely see that. The thing that he did contribute to this supposedly is his last line of this of his little monologue, uh, which is after they step off the Ferris wheel, Wells says, uh, in Italy, for thirty years under the Borgias, they had warfare, terror, murder, and bloodshed. But they produced Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, and the Renaissance. In Switzerland, they had brotherly love, they had 500 years of democracy and peace, and what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Goodbye, Holly. Like, it's such a good, like, encapsulation of his character and what he Like believes. the Swiss army knife doesn't exist. <laughs> it's Swiss cheese. Why did the Swiss even have an army? I can't. That was somebody's joke that I heard a couple days ago. Yeah. Ah, that's like, why don't they just make the airplanes out of the black box? Yes, yep. Does <laughs> um, the next scene, uh, Holly and Anne meeting up at the train station? Anna? Uh, well, the setup for it is um, Holly goes to the police uh, and he makes a deal with them. It, this happens off screen, but he, his deal is that if they let Anna go on the charges of having falsified papers, he will turn Harry in. That's the deal that he sets up. So the police take Anna to the train station, uh, and Holly is there to see her off, although he's he's smart enough to actually not try to talk to her at this point. He He realizes that she probably doesn't want to see him, I think. This train depot 
there's a bunch of spider plants along the wall. Mm-hmm. I think that would be a great house plant for you to grow because you say that you kill everything. Uh-huh. I have it known that it's almost impossible to kill a spider plant and they're awesome. That was my first house plant I ever had and that's what got me into the whole hobby. Do they thrive uh, on neglect? Yes. Good. Yes. Uh, Anna is supposed to leave on the train, but she gets off to confront Holly and yell at him, basically. She finds out the deal he made. Uh, not only does she turn down the offer, she refuses to get back on the train to go to safety. She refuses the comfort of his overcoat, and she tears up the papers that she was given. Like, what more rejection could you want this guy to oh, go he, through? He, he needs more. Yes, he does, because he he's, needs he's a big dum-dum. <laughs> um, yeah, going for Callaway, his jacket, I love his jacket that he wears throughout mm-hmm. the course of this movie. It's one of those where it has, like, the hoop of fabric, and then you have, like, a little piece of wood or bamboo stick, and that's your button that you run it through, and mm-hmm. it's just, again... Damn it, I wish it was colder here so I could wear cool clothes like that. Uh, the other uh, policeman, the one who loves Holly's books, has like this leather vest overcoat thing that he wears. Uh, and I can't tell if it's part of the sleeves or not, but I like the structure of it. It looks like a big square. It makes the man look way more intimidating, I think. Um, but it's I think it's another cool uh, touch to it. Yeah. And before I forget the next movie, we get another Candyman jacket. Yes. That's a great jacket. That that open lapel with the fur. Oh, Mm. that jacket and the next movie in Blade Runner. Yep. That jacket does like 90% of the heavy lifting in that movie. Uh, If they don't have that jacket, that movie doesn't work. So that's two movies where Ryan Gosling is basically a hanger for a great jacket that tells the story. Oh, Drive? Yes. <laughs> I I only saw that in theaters. I oh, need to rewatch it. Oh, shit. Yeah, could you imagine walking around with a shiny jacket with a giant scorpion on your back? Uh-huh. Just the mocking that I would get <laughs> from my friends. <laughs> and it's white, too. You'd get, you'd get some spaghetti sauce on that puppy? Forget about it. Yeah, you gotta dry clean that thing? There's yeah. no way that's going in the wash. Nope. <laughs> so uh yeah this is where holly still needs convincing to basically cross harry so we go to the kids ward um and we get the setup now for the final chase scene here as the trap has been set yep holly says i'll be your dumb decoy duck which is the best he can be i think yeah uh, he's he's got that right on when i like this sequence um the way that it's set up uh with holly is waiting in the cafe for harry to show up uh the policemen are waiting in the shadows outside and then you see from the top of one of these bombed out buildings harry walks and he's overlooking everything like it's just it's another cool introduction for his character into this sequence and for the first time, when you see the streets, they look laid out and purposeful. Like, he has a bird's eye view of the situation. 
Yeah, I do like the geography of this scene, though, where you, you do get a sense of the trap and where each of these different players is located. Mm -hmm. And time and again, the shot that always cracks me up in this movie is when you see the, the military police car and it has the four nation flags and a soldier from each nation. It just looks so goofy Yeah, seeing four guys in different costumes all sitting there bouncing around in a jeep. The... Uh... I don't know if it plays in the same space, but the Soderbergh film, The Good German, Soderbergh does a commentary uh, for The Third Man, along with the screenwriter Tony Gilroy, uh, the, on the Criterion disc, and it's on the, the channel as well. I listened to a little bit of it last night, uh, and he pulled a lot from this movie for his movie, The Good German, uh, which I think is an underrated one of his. How many movies has Soderbergh made? A whole bunch. <laughs> have you seen them all? I have not. I especially haven't seen. Whoa! Um, wow, the, you that yeah. genuinely shocked me because you have like such an uh, like intimate relationship with yep. his work. Yeah, he is. Uh, you know, on Letterboxd, you can see your stats, and so you can see who your most watched directors are and everything. Uh, he's like fourth or fifth on my most watched directors list. The Cohen brothers are way up there. Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm going to wait for the end of, um, the end of the year here before I sign up for Letterboxd Pro. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I'm a real nerd about stats, and so I want to know most watched directors. But I need to fill in because I wasn't logging my movies from January until about March. I was just throwing star ratings on them. But oh. I didn't know about the whole yeah. logging aspect. Um, so I, I have some work to do as I go back in time and editorialize things and figure it out. But this is definitely the most movies I've watched in a year by far this year. The other thing is um, they've got uh, your stats for... Uh, uh, for different lists. So they have like the IMDb top 250 and how many of those you've watched or how many Oscar winners you've watched and stuff like that. And it, it'll tell you your progress on those lists. And my progress on a lot of those lists is, is woeful. It is, it is shameful. If they had a list that was um, how many shitty eighties slashers films have you seen? I would top out the charts. I would, I would max out my creds on those but the actual like Oscar winners list to be fair, a lot of them I realized I did watch before I started logging and I don't log. I don't go back and log anything from before the before times. It has to have been. No, to, I found forward. my IMDB account recently and there's hundreds of movies with ratings from the time I was like 16 or 17 until 24, 25, something mm -hmm. like that. And it's, pretty fascinating to look back and see like what I was into and what I kind of poo-pooed at the time, <laughs> but there's no chance in hell I'm going to spend 10 hours transferring all of that data over to Letterboxd. Yeah. Uh, we also need to synchronize. Alright. Three, two, one. Oh, my hands were slightly wet. Oh. My hands were slightly damp when I did that. That really stung. Did you ever get slapped in the back when you had a wet back and oh, your yeah. friends 
we call that a body glove because of the the hands that company yeah. that did the body glove um wetsuits yep oh my god nothing more painful in the i've never been in a fist fight but when somebody does something that like inflicts pain like that uh, that can set me off <laughs> <laughs> luckily as an adult people don't do that anymore but as a kid i used to get so pissed off with things like that i can't imagine there's so many things that you uh go through as a kid like those little scuffles or the fact that you could just fall down like you'd be running around and trip and fall and like land flat on your face and like skin your chin or skin up your hands and stuff as an adult that would fucking ruin my month if i skinned up my face i would be like i would just be done i'm like no i'm done with life i'm not gonna face the rest of the world for a while i was as a kid i got my first skateboard it was a really cheap one and I was out in the driveway fucking around with it. And so instead of riding it normally, I was on my knees on it and then like pushing myself along mm-hmm. with my hands, kind of loose style. At one point, somehow I felt I leaned too far back on it and ended up getting all the weight on the tail, which kicked the board up and it kicked it and smacked me right in the face. Ooh. And I don't know if it's the grip tape or something, but like. My nose and above my lip and my chin, I just had like scabbing there. And I remember just being like so mortified about going to school. It just like kids are going to make fun of me or something. You know, like just so anytime anything like that happens to you as a kid and then you have to go to school, mm-hmm. anything that will draw attention to you is just sometimes I think it's easy to forget how stressful childhood was. Uh, I had, it, I mean, you can't see it on the camera, probably. I've got a fairly prominent scar on the front of my forehead um, from when I was a kid. And uh, I fell off a porch and did uh, a half gainer, which it, when you're going under to ground, halves are not good in flips. <laughs> no, no, they're not. And they're not landed right on my forehead on a rock and split it open. And so first of all, uh, this was, it had to be like 1985, 86. Um, my parents encouraged me to sleep on the way to the hospital with, with my <laughs> <Yeah>. head wound. <laughs> They're like, Just no, you need rest. It'll be okay. Yes. <laughs> oh, no. With my, with my concussed oh, no. head. Uh, and <laughs> then I had to have a couple days of, uh, a wrap all the way around my head to hold the bandages on. To, no. to oh, wow. That's like movie stuff. Yes. And what did I do to, to play off of this? I put a feather in it and pretended to be an Indian. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's how you went to school. Yes. This is, this is how I tried to play it off as like something that would be cool. And fun. Oh no, Josh. Uh, oh no. Oh, the mid 80s were a different time. Not only is that not cool, it's racist. It's, it's dorky <laughs> and racist. I, I really kind of nailed I I know, that but I'm sure somewhere there's got to be photos of me doing like Thanksgiving stuff as a kindergartner with a headdress on or feathers and guaranteed man it was just that was the time um oh yeah we're talking about a movie here yes 
So we're in the final chase sequence now. And I really love as Harry's running, you can just feel the walls closing in on him as mm-hmm. every single little outlet or exit that he thinks he's going to go has somebody with the dog at the top of the stairs or later on when he's hearing all the voices coming down every single individual tunnel you just get this great feeling of claustrophobia Mm -hmm. there's i think it's this sense of creeping dread that builds up uh really in this chase sequence because you do see him down at the end of these long corridors and then a few shots later, you'll see the police enter the beginning of that long corridor or pop out from the side uh, through another connecting tunnel or something. And it gives you, it's like the danger isn't here yet, but you know it's happening. And you really don't know which way it's going to swing because Holly is down in the sewers running around with the with the policemen. Uh, there's agents from all the different police uh, presences in the city, apparently, chasing this man down as he runs through the international part of the city um, through this thing that had been his safe haven before, right? Like, the first time Harry escapes, it's down into the sewers, and he disappears without a trace. This time, uh, he runs, like, at one point, he runs up a slope, and the the walls actually close in the ceiling and the floor come together. And it's like, he's crouched over trying to get through and he can't do it. Um, and just imagine like, these are the sewers for this metropolis. It's gotta be disgusting down there. They have rats in the scenes running like basically across people's feet, which I thought was a very cool touch. Um, and I don't know how you can necessarily get away with, uh, just like, hey, let's throw some rats down there. Uh, but the fact that it does kind of build and build to this point where Harry gets trapped and in a very selfish act, when the nice policeman is yelling at him to stop, he shoots him right in the stomach. And that it's the saddest moment of the movie for me. Yeah, that guy. Why that guy? Yeah, he was the only one who's actually been nice to Holly uh, and hasn't kind of mocked him or straight up, you know, told him that he's an idiot, basically. He did see worth in what Holly was doing, and you get the idea that he's a nice dude, even though he's like the police enforcer, and he gets shot in the gut. You're right. It's such a selfish kill because there's... It changes nothing. Mm Mm-hmm. There's no point to it. Um, Harry knows that he's either captured or dead, guaranteed. So why why take someone out with you? Just yes. because you're a piece of shit. Um, so does the... How does Harry, Harry get shot? They shoot each other, right? Yeah. Harry gets... Uh, he gets winged in the side or something, it looks like. And he's crawling up the steps. And this is where somehow Holly ends up with he takes the gun from the soldier and Holly ends up being the one in the front again. Why are the police allowing this writer to be armed with a gun uh-huh. running around with them on a manhunt? It's I really I love how it plays out though. The the dramatics of it, the logistics of it make no sense. The dramatics of it though, the fact that um 
Holly approaches Harry, and Harry's fingers are going up through a sewer grate. He's so close to escaping and back what into a these shot. twisting streets. And it feels like the you see a breeze. It's like his yes. fingers feel freedom for the last time. Yep. Such a cool shot. And when he turns to Holly and he just kind of nods his assent, like it's o it's okay. It's okay. You do what you have to do. And it cuts away from them, and you just hear the gunshot echoed on that corridor. Uh, and then you see Holly walk back in from that blinding white light at the end, and the the smoke that's there, like kind of filtering through it. Uh, it's a it's a real it's a I think it's a great moment. And the unfortunate thing is, this is all happening to Holly, who I feel like will learn nothing from it. <laughs> no, this guy is not going to change anything about himself, but he will write this into a story to make profit off of tragedy. Um, I like the fact that he goes back and the, the policeman is basically like, this kind of shrugs his shoulders. Like, yeah, you did what you had to do. Um, and then afterwards, like the final scene. Yeah. We see the, basically we got Harry's second funeral. (laughs) Oh, right. Second funeral. Yeah. And this time, not nearly as many people. No, and this time Anna does take that dirt and spread it over the coffin. Uh, uh, good point. I, I feel like that's because she is ready to let him go, uh, or at least let what she had with him go, and and yes. bury it where it belongs. Yeah. Well, it's about time. But. Uh... <laughs> still somehow Holly thinks that like he's still gonna white knight the situation mm-hmm. even at this point like he's still going to he gets the ride with Callaway and they're gonna let her leave and then but he gets out of the car because he thinks that's what she needs or it's... <sighs> this guy's learned nothing yeah <laughs> That's the thing. He thinks he's still going to get to be the hero, at least of her story, and get away with the girl. And, uh, I mean, film scholar-wise, this is a famous last shot. The um, And it's a long take. Like, I don't know how long it is. She walks a couple hundred yards. Yes, she's clear in the background. But this shot, in contrast to most of the rest of the movie... Uh, it's a center-framed shot. Nothing is off-kilter. We see the vanishing point in the distance with these rows of trees going through this cemetery. And Anna walks up directly towards the camera, uh, and Holly is leaning off to one side, kind of waiting for her. He He's thinks, trying to do a cool guy lean. Yes, he thinks he's he going like, to be cool. Yeah. Uh, come on over to my arms, baby. Yeah. <laughs> Not a single word. Doesn't even glance at him. Just straight by. It's so satisfying because yep. Holly sucks. She uh, she even walks off to camera right uh, or screen right. And he's on screen left. Like they were on the same path for a little while. And now they're diverging never to meet again. And Holly is left there just by himself among the dead. 
And that's where we leave him, like standing there smoking beside a wood cart in a cemetery. And bombed out Vienna. Mm -hmm. That is the third man. Um, Thank you, man. That that was a really cool one. I'm glad also just to watch more movies from the 40s and 50s. It's been a real blind spot for me for a long time. So knocking out some of those classics, I think, is always good for you to see kind of the history of where things came from and how they progressed to where they are now. Mm -hmm. I definitely do. Do you get the feeling just with the nature of shooting on film and everything, just movies back then, everything just felt a little more planned, Mm -hmm. a little more meticulous. I love like the digital age we're in now, but, so many shots are just like, all right, well, uh, we'll get a two shot here, and uh, that, that, that looks fine. All right. Um, okay, now we're just going to do a little zoom on a one, but uh, well, the lighting, that's fine if it's flat. It doesn't matter. It just, I feel like we're just turning and burning movies at this point sometimes. I think it's funny that you bring that up during this discussion, though, because we're going to go into a very modern movie that I feel like is very deliberate. Uh, but This I, is true. I had true. the same. I made notes, actually, in both of these. That one thing that I hate, um, and it seems to be prevalent in modern movies, is they will give you cool shot after cool shot after cool shot that have no impact or do nothing to forward the story or the mood or the theme at all. They just give you cool shots, and they don't even let you appreciate them. I feel like both of these movies give you these great shots where you actually get to sit with it for a while and really appreciate the artistry and the composition that goes into it. Uh, And I, I love that about both of these films. uh, Movies today don't seem to have the confidence to take their time. Sometimes Mm -hmm. it'd be stunning to get like a two minute long, still Tarkovsky esque shot. In a modern movie. Yes. Or when it does happen, it's it's a big deal kind of thing. Yes. Like just sitting with a moment um, and not just throwing the camera around and especially not just doing. uh, I saw somebody refer to it as triangle coverage for conversation scenes where you shoot your wide from the apex and then you shoot your over the shoulders from the sides uh, and everyone's in kind of a close medium. And that's it. Like the third man and everything had to be so precise because of the style they were shooting in, the fact that they were shooting on film, the matching of the studios at Shepperton to the exteriors uh, in Vienna, the way that they matched those up, I think was almost seamless throughout this movie. Um, And the, uh, the thoughtfulness that goes into when do you jump into your close-up? Uh, when do you go from like your wide to your medium? Do you need a close-up in this moment? Uh, and I feel like a lot of that is, I don't want to say that people don't think about it, but maybe they don't care. Maybe it's not it placed as much importance on it anymore. I don't know. Yeah. It's also just like you said before, Digital, just keep the cameras rolling, which is both a blessing and a curse. Um, so, what do you rate it? Uh, I, I like this fact, uh, especially with Blade Runner coming up, because 
I really want to talk about Blade Runner before I rate it. So I like that you have stressed that we shouldn't do our ratings until we talk about them. I like yeah, this. Yeah, I don't know how you feel about these. Yeah. Um, this is a three and a half out of five for me. Okay. What worked was I liked the performances. Um, the music was really good, but the music's also a hindrance for it. Where I feel like the discrepancy in tone combined with our protagonist just being a bit too bumbling and uh, I was just never quite able to latch onto this movie emotionally or I, I something was just never quite connecting or clicking with me. So I enjoyed it and I think the the production value is really impressive. And just as a historical document and film document, it's great and really valid. Uh, but on a personal experience, I liked it a lot, but didn't love it. Okay. Uh, I'm going to up you by half a star, like a four out of five. And partially I feel like because uh, I have spent a lot of time with uh, films noir uh, and in that world and a just studying a lot of those movies. I like that this movie does something different within the format and plays with it differently and tries something different. So I think that um, I have more of an appreciation now that I kind of know where it fits into uh, film more as a whole uh, than I did the first time I saw it. Probably. (laughs) All right, up next we are going to be talking about... Oh, God, I should have Googled how to pronounce this guy's name. Uh, just, <laughs> we're going to talk... Run into it. Din, we're going to talk about Denis Villeneuve's uh, movie Blade Runner 2049 from 2017. I know it's confusing, but it's not a time travel movie. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> this was my first time watching it. Um... I knew it was noir. I've seen the original Blade Runner a few years ago. I've seen it one time. I thought the original Blade Runner was all right. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about that much at all, but I was was really excited to watch this also because Arrival is one of my all-time favorite movies and theatrical experiences. And um, I have not seen Dune yet either. So. Yeah, so a lot of Denny Villeneuve going around these days. Okay. So, uh, I have seen Blade Runner a bunch, um, but I have not seen it for probably 15 years. Maybe slightly less than that. Okay, looks like maybe 2009 or 2010. Uh, Maybe 2007. Whenever... They released an edition that came in a briefcase that had every cut uh, of the movie up to that point with the the final cut, the work print, um, the final, final cut, the voiceover version. I think there are five or six different cuts of it in there. Um, When that came out, I watched all of those on consecutive days. uh, Wow. And did the commentaries and like I I ate that whole set. It was just beautifully put together Uh, and a fun. A lot of fun little knickknacks with it, but I have not watched it since then. Uh, so my memory my t- on it, a little fuzzy. My takeaway from Blade Runner was visually stunning 
an incredible production, but the plot was way too thin, and I didn't quite know what was going on. I I, I didn't I don't remember what version I watched. Final Cut. Whatever I watched, whatever version everyone recommends as the one to watch. Okay, um, probably the remember. directors or the Final Cut. I think it was directors, maybe, but um, there's like one. The, the relationship, the romance with Rachel, mm-hmm. there's a point where he's like just basically like sexually assaulting her and then she kind of gets into it after he's it's just really uncomfortable and left like a real sour taste in my mouth. I'm like this is this is supposed to be like a love story, but this feels super predatory and fucked up. Okay. So that just basically I just the the idea of like sitting there eating noodles on a sci-fi street as it's constantly raining is my primary memory of Blade Runner. <laughs> the uh that and I remember the the beautiful um building uh is it a Frank Lloyd Wright building? No. Maybe not. That they use for the the derelict apartment um it's also been used in a lot of other things. I think it was used in 500 days of summer uh, for the architectural firm or whatever that he interviews at. Uh, Never seen it. Uh, I remember that. And the scene of um, when he retires the, the replicant uh, out in the street and they bust through all of the uh, storefronts, like the windows and everything. There's so many reflections uh, and mirrors happening. Woo. I remember that. <laughs> it rings um, a bell. And then and then Rucker Hauer. Um Yes. I would like to just like rewatch the Rutger Hauer thing. Or maybe now that I've seen this movie and I kind of understand things more, maybe I should rewatch the original. I don't know. It but definitely recontextualizes starts, it. I was very happy that this movie starts with a card that just lays everything out because I did not remember anything about replicants or blade runners or <laughs> i needed that that card um i love this movie starts you get that like tink of the sony logo mm-hmm. but then that tink then like morphs into the score of the movie and becomes part of the synth as it dissolves into it it's very cool the okay i don't know where to bring this up so i'll do it right off the top you felt the the plot for the first one was thin. I felt the same in this. Uh, I rarely let myself get ahead of a movie when I'm watching it. I normally kind of sit back, especially the first watch, and just appreciate the movie as it's coming to me. I don't try to predict what's going to happen. Uh, Plot-wise, though, for this movie, I was all the way at the end. like partway into it um the the mechanics of what happens to k our main character i already saw coming and it left me struggling a little bit with what do i latch on to in the back half of this movie especially with when i realize that he's not when i know that he's not the character that we think we're following 
right? Like mm. he is set up to be the special character and the movie is telling you that and the characters Did are telling you... you that too early. That's okay. So that the movie didn't give you a clue except for the fact that this prophecy wouldn't be revealed in where does it happen? Like the end of the first act? Well, the, I think the fact that he goes along with it so early because right. Like you're supposed to have the call to adventure and then the refusal of the call. Uh, and then they get dragged into the adventure anyway. Um, Luke Skywalker doesn't want to go with Obi-Wan Kenobi until his aunt and uncle are killed. And then he must go on the adventure. Uh, you know, speaking like in the classical terms, uh, this, once it is suggested to him that he might be the special child, he kind of goes, okay, and buys into it very quickly. Um, and I felt like, well, clearly it's not him then. And when we do meet the character who it winds up being, there's not that many characters in the world, right? You haven't met like tons of people. And no. so when you get to her, uh, it's very much, I was like, oh, it's obviously her. Like, it just kind of made sense to me that that was obviously her. The only other time I've been that far ahead of a movie was The Sixth Sense, when uh, the first shot of him, of uh, oh, Bruce Willis, Bruce. Uh, after he gets shot, I leaned over to my date and I was like, this is all his, I thought it was his death fantasy, but I was like, he's dead the whole time. Uh, I said it offhandedly and jokingly just because of the way the, the shot was cut. Uh, and I didn't really think about it the rest of the movie. This, the whole time, I was like, we have these long, ponderous kind of scenes of Kay recovering his memories, and then he goes in uh, and finds out that his memories are true and not implanted like they would be if he was an actual replicant, right? Uh, and they're supposed to have all this meaningful weight, and so you sit there for two minutes with the shot, but if he's not that character, does that shot mean the same thing? Or does it mean something different? Or is it now just a misdirect that doesn't hold any weight? Wow. Well, you had an entirely different experience <laughs> from me because I was not ahead of this movie because I was confused by it, parts of it. So I was just like, if I try to understand this now, I know this movie will make sense later. Right. So I'm just not, not going to try to figure it out now. So when they would introduce certain things like when they introduced the idea of like there was like a copy and there was like a boy and a girl or something, I was like, uh, that doesn't make any sense. So I'll when they reveal it later, that's when I'll think about it. So right. I, was, I was able to put all this butt on the back burner and just kind of go with it, I guess, because I I didn't know what was important or it's not it's not com it's not a very complicated movie, but just trying to figure out like character motivations in this world and stuff. Mm -hmm. I, I was just kind of letting it come as it came without trying to do too much thinking. And I think one reason for that is just the experience of this movie. It, it, the, it lets you sink into it with the score. The score is really good. I guess it's Hans Zimmer. I thought this was a, um, I thought this was one of Johan Johansson's last scores. But this is Benjamin Walfish and Hans Zimmer. Okay. Uh, but I really, I really liked it. Not on par with Annihilation, though. 
Annihilation still has some of the best synthesizer work that I've heard in any movie. Uh, and I still haven't seen Annihilation. So. We talked about it on this show. Oh, Annihilation. Uh, I thought you were saying <laughs> Arrival for some reason, because the <laughs> Denis Villeneuve uh, oh, connection. You haven't seen Arrival? I have not seen Arrival, no. Oh, man. All right. I think I've only... Can we go back to a weekly format so we can talk more movies? <laughs> We've yeah. got to get all these never, movies never, in. Never again. Never. Um, yeah, the the thing that I was left with, there's a Roger Ebert quote where uh, it's something like, a movie isn't what it's about, it's how it's about it. Which I always think of, like, the movie isn't about the plot, it's about how they deliver it to you, right? Um, okay yeah and there's so much more to be gleaned from a movie than just its plot uh, and i think you know, talking about in the last movie holly represents the american forces coming in at the end of world war ii like that totally makes sense and it tracks um in these puzzle box movies what this kind of is do they give you enough meat to chew on for a second viewing um Something like The Sixth Sense, uh, there definitely is for me. There's enough relationship drama in there. Um, usual suspects, right? Like, you get all of the, the great character actor moments. That was one. I won't spoil it, but that was one where I just turned to my friend jokingly as we were watching the DVD. I was like, wouldn't it be funny <laughs> if so-and-so were actually the bad guy? Right. And then my friend had seen it, didn't say anything. And then an hour later, yep, I was right. <laughs> Uh, so I don't, you know, this would be, I don't know if this would be good on a rewatch, honestly, because it, it, it is slow, but it's beautiful. There's yes so many shots where there's so much to take in and just let seep in about this world. And I love the world building is really cool in this movie with the, how pervasive the advertising is. And how things seem to be geared towards just dehumanizing you. Where like, when they go to that vending machine and you see all the different buttons and one is just like a quick fix. Mm -hmm. And it's like, we're just going to call our product exactly what it is. Like a hit of dopamine, basically, or something, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. The, the basic plot is uh, laid out, like you said at the beginning. It tells us the state of the world. Uh, the... The movie, the first movie, was focused on the ne Nexus 8 replicants who were hunted down by Blade Runners when they didn't want to come back in at the end of their lifespan and be retired peacefully. The Blade Runners would go out and hunt them down. Uh, and thematically, there's a lot to be said about uh, searching for meaning in life and do the characters have souls um, if you're created from man or if you're a god created creature right uh this movie starts by telling us that there's still Nex nexus eight replicants out there who are being hunted down um but the new models the nexus nines never rebel against humanity they are totally tame and safe and then we meet k the ryan gosling character who he actually has a serial number k is just short for a serial number um, who is one of the new Blade Runners and one of the new replicants. I, I was going to say, 
This sounds just like the movie iRobot before I realized that they're both based on the same story. <laughs> so it is the movie iRobot. No, they're not. Are they both electric dreams of sleep? No. Are they both based on that? Nope. iRobot is based on iRobot by Isaac Asimov. This is Philip K. Dick. But those guys are like the same guy. They're the same dude, essentially. All those sci-fi writers back then, they're all, whatever. You you wrote sci-fi back in the 40s or 50s. You're one guy. Yes, they blend into each other. And uh, they're probably the same guy who wrote Dune. And that's why <laughs> Denis Villeneuve moved from this to Dune. It's, yeah. It's the same And they're also, uh, Lovecraft is in there too. They're all HP Lovecraft. <laughs> A bunch of Lovecraft running around. Bunch of racist assholes right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh. So, uh, yeah, this movie starts, and I was a little nervous when we get introduced first to Dave Batista because <laughs> I I liked Army of the Dead when I saw it in theater, but mm-hmm. I think it was just because it was my first movie watching in a theater since COVID happened. Right. Because every time that I've thought back on that movie, I like it a little less. I <laughs> I can so, see that, yeah. Um, uh, the... But I think Batista's a good actor, especially from that, like, wrestler's camp. Oh, yeah. Wrestler's turned actors. Still think Roddy Piper is the best, but <laughs> Batista's good. Uh, I was going to say, I think it's bold of the movie to introduce you to its best character first and then kill him immediately. Because <laughs> I he... love him. I love his farm. His whole, yeah. like, he's apparently living off the grid. He's got a protein farm where he farms grubs, essentially. Um, and and garlic. Yes, and garlic, because it's good for him. And it's, there's something like, well, and they did, apparently. Um, I didn't watch them. They're an extra on the digital copy. Um, they did prologues. They did three prologues to this movie, um, which... I kind of didn't want to watch them because I just wanted the movie to inform our conversation today. I'll probably watch them later. Uh, also, they're like an additional half hour of content, and I just was not going to stay up that late and watch it. Um, Even though you watched Stalker twice for this show. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think we were a little overly enthusiastic back then. Ah, <laughs> oh, that movie deserves it, though. Like You watched, you watched so much content for yes. Stalker. <laughs> And it's still, it's haunting me, so. <laughs> rightfully so. Um, I think garlic and bugs could taste pretty good. Yeah. I think if you got like a nice roasted clove of garlic with a little bit of a sautéed grub, just mm-hmm. the right texture. Just saying. H- have seems you, reasonable. Have you ever eaten bugs? <sighs> um, no. No, I have not. Have you? Yes. I have had uh, three different varieties. I have had uh, crispy um, grasshopper, like that somebody brought back from a trip. And then I've had from a a very uh, foodie friend brought me chocolate-covered ants and chocolate-covered grasshopper uh, at one point in time to try. And I would would eat any of them again. I'm, I'm totally fine with all of them. Josh, have you ever watched Survivor Man? 
I don't. Uh, is that Les Stroud? Is that? It is. Okay. I, I've seen it, um, but I never got into it the way that I got into um, the, the other don't, don't, program. Don't you say it. Okay, sorry. Don't you dare say okay. it. Don't sorry. you dare foul our <laughs> podcast with that man's name. Tell me. Go ahead. Tell me who you watch. I don't anymore. This was years ago when he first came out. I watched. Say I, it. I watched Bear Grylls. Oh, sorry. Oh, <laughs> this is bad, Josh. Because I'm like a Survivor man, diehard of like Bear Grylls is a phony. If you want real Survivor, <laughs> let's not get into it. But I love Survivor man. He's awesome. He's a guy. He just goes out with his own camera gear and films himself surviving for a couple days, up to like ten days, and it's really cool. He does like long shots where he walks. A couple hundred yards away from the camera, and then they edit it, so then it shows him walking back to then pick up the camera. Mm -hmm. And he's a really talented filmmaker, but I remember on one episode, he had extremely good fortune catching grasshoppers, and he just made like a skewer out of a long piece of grass, and was just skewering a grasshopper after grasshopper, and just made like a little shish kebab, roasted it over the fire, and he is like, this is delicious. (laughs) Uh, I would try, I think I would try bugs. I I recently, you know, started eating some fish after a long time of, just like, straight vegetarianism. Um, hey, oysters. Those are, some people find those weird. Oh, yeah. I'll eat an oyster. Uh, what about a snail? Nah. I'm out on snails. Oh. I used to, used to love it. That would be my go-to, um... My my aunt owned a restaurant uh, in Mishawaka uh, near where I God grew bless up. you. <laughs> and it was my go-to place to take dates because I could go. Uh, this is when I was when I was a teenager. I could go and get us mocktails uh, and escargot for dinner and seem very fancy. You were getting dates with snails and fake alcohol. I was, I also listened to a lot of jazz and had like, uh, uh, almost a full school year where I wore suits to school. So what, (laughs) at what age? Oh, uh, 17. You wore suits to high school. Yes. I wore suits with suspenders and, and ties. Uh, I was very into the jazz and that whole. Uh, so you're like a little Paul saying. F. Tompkins? Yeah, I was a little fancy lad. Or a John Hodgman, yeah. Wow. Yep. That blew my mind right there. <laughs> but that was immediately after my Jim Morrison phase, where I wore uh, cowboy boots, tight jeans, big flowy poet shirts, and had long <laughs> hair. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Why are poets always wearing such big shirts? <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. They always have like wizard robes on. Yes. They need to because they swan around all the time. Yeah, they can't have their emotions be constricted by cotton. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, Gosling uh, basically says, oh, you're a replicant. I'm going to have to either bring you in or kill you. And Batiste is not about that. They start to fight. 
pretty badass fight here. There's a reenactment wall smash. I bet you laughed when you saw that. Yes. Uh, there's two good wall smashes in this movie, and both times are. I, I yeah. clocked them, and I was like, huh, I wonder how they prepped their wall to throw a man through it. <laughs> uh, my next note is throat punches are scary. And when Gosling just K punches him in the throat multiple mm-hmm. times, it's just terrifying. Like, throat punches in general scare the shit out of me because it's something it's it's it'd be easy to kill somebody by hitting them too hard it reminded me of um the ronnie lily episode of barry oh that yeah that one yeah that episode everyone should watch barry and we won't spoil anything here but that episode just as being like a one-off weird experimental art piece kind of episode mm-hmm. god that was so good and so funny too i was laughing out loud so many times during that that yeah. show's excellent i can't wait for it to come back uh and it, that was that episode was directed by bill Hader as well which that fight scene in the beginning is phenomenally put together i think it's so creative and the use of the camera and it is just like the what it shows you and what it doesn't show you i think is really masterful um batista is recovering he gets up as gosling gets his gun and he says you know why you new models scrape shit i think is what he says Mm -hmm. Uh, because you've never seen a miracle and then he gets capped um I like this idea. And uh, have you seen the movie Equilibrium with Christian Bale? Oh, uh with Gunkata, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Gunkata, yeah. There's some uh like later on as Ryan R- or as Kay goes outside, he sees like that that dead flower at the base of the tree. You kind of get some equilibrium shots where it's a movie about a world that's outlawed emotion and feeling and art. And so when Gosling sees certain things like that tree or this flower, you kind of feel like certain parts of his brain might be getting woken up Mm -hmm. by getting emotionally moved where he's clearly not supposed to have any emotion whatsoever, essentially. And I did like Batista's performance here. You're right, because he does. He has that like flowers for Algernon kind of moment where like, I've seen the other side and it's beautiful. Mm hmm. The he tells him that uh, he scrapes shit because he's he hasn't seen a miracle. Um, that comes back later. Yeah, and so he's talking about childbirth. Yes, I would. Yeah. Okay. Um, and specifically that he, a replicant who is supposed to not be able to have a child carry a child to term and have a, a viable embryo. Um. When he's going to leave, um, Kay, we get the idea that Kay is great at his job. I think they they sketch it out very lightly here, but between the fact that he has his drone do a scan and then scan underground of the area to make sure that there's nobody else there and the sapper wasn't hiding any of their secrets, and then when he goes back. 
and they do his his baseline test to see where he's at uh, emotionally. Basically, although the robots aren't supposed to, the replicants aren't supposed to have emotions. Uh, that I loved that little sequence, and they call him Constant K. Like he is always, uh, you know, five by five. He's he's going to be the guy who does things right and does things well and very thoroughly, I feel like. Uh, that's also, um, what are British police called? Constant, Constants, I think. Nope. Nope. Something like that. Constable. There Constable. we go. So I thought maybe there was something like that there. Um, but... I, I was like, Constantinople? so we see these flyover shots of la but as he's going back to the police precinct and the way that that's just stacked in literal blocks or it's just everything is just blocks of housing and blocks of shit and then the skyscrapers and that's it i have anxiety just from seeing these flyover shots i don't think i would last long in this life I <laughs> this world was not meant for me. This Blade Runner world. Um, have you? Are you familiar with uh, the walled city of Kowloon? No. Uh, it is Japanese um, or Chinese uh, city from the uh, period of the Japanese occupation of Hong Kong. Uh, in the second world war. And it looks like that, although it's a contained area, but it was like this overcrowded that they built up. If you've ever played, um, the Deus Ex games, it's very much like that kind of setting where everything is stacked on top of each other. All the people are living in these tenements kind of, um, in the, these little tiny capsules, uh, they also talk about it kind of in Ready Player One. They have the redneck version of it uh, with uh, mobile homes stacked on top of each other. But if you look up the, the design... <laughs> it's, so, it's, it's so subtle, Ready Player One. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if you look up the design from uh, this movie and then look up the, the walled city, like it definitely feels like that's what they pulled from. Um, and I mean, there's so much of this where they lean into, in both of these movies, where they lean into essentially uh, the idea that China has has taken over uh, a lot of what we do culturally and technologically speaking. So I feel like it's it had to be an influence on it. Yeah, it, the, the it seems like language is becoming universal, or not language, but just every language now exists common commonly in California. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When we later, when he goes to see what is his name? Dr. Badger, I think mm-hmm. um, that the guy from uh, Captain Phillips. Yes. Uh, and they're speaking two different languages, but they understand each other. Yes. I, I thought that was a really cool touch. Yeah. Uh, when he gets back to the precinct or whatever, <laughs> he gets in the shower and a little voice goes, 99.9% detoxified water. And then it just blasts him for two seconds, and that's his shower. I love that. Does that voice come on every single time just to remind you that 0.1% of your water is toxic? <laughs> I thought it was really cool. Like, 
um, uh, it reminded me of the apartment in the Fifth Element. Uh, this, Bruce Willis' yes, apartment. This, yeah, this has a lot of Fifth Element in the apartment esque parts of things. Yeah, um, and that's where we get introduced to Anna de Armas, and I like that we hear her from the kitchen. And so I didn't think he had a girlfriend, but the movie presents it that way. But then he's listening to a song, and she goes. Did you know this was released on Reprise Records in 1966? Yes. It's just like, God, because AI is always going to be just kind of weird. Yeah. Even in when they get it fully right, AI is still just going to be weird sometimes and uncanny. Uh, so that was a cool moment. Uh, this point where she walks and then I, I, I think... What they do with her character, when they show her putting on all the different wigs and outfits and stuff, it's really cool. I like a lot of this. And when they're when he's trying to hug her or trying to touch her it, in this movie, it it feels like it's VR. Where like when you when you have a VR headset on, you have the controllers, and so it's like you're kind of mimicking touching things, but there's not that sensation in your hands yet. But you can almost trick your brain that you are touching things. It's very interesting. Um, this has... Did you think of the movie Her when you were watching this movie? I've never seen Her, but yes, I did. Oh, mama. Okay, so we're watching Her and Arrival. Can I somehow make those fit together? <laughs> those, don't, those don't fit together. But add that to the list. Josh, Her is beautiful. Oh, man. I, I highly, highly recommend her. It's it's such a cool view of like retro futurism where it's future society, but things somehow feel like it's just everyone's on a Sunday picnic kind of vibe. I, I love that movie so much. Joaquin Phoenix is amazing. Um, Scarlett Johansson's really good. Uh, gotta see it, man. I know, I know, but there's only so many hours in a day. And I have to watch uh, Stalker multiple times. <laughs> uh, so this is where he gives her his gift, right? Because Anna de Armas has been attached to this satellite dish in his apartment. And now he has a little USB device thing that basically liberates her from the apartment, right? Yes. And I don't know. I like that it's a mixture of like hard sci-fi and kind of fantasy. Uh, like technological fantasy because the way that she's presented at first is that there's this holographic projector that comes down from the ceiling and has an arm. Um, and it looks like some dental equipment almost, but it projects her wherever in the apartment that she is supposed to be walking. Um, and then he, his gift to her is this emanator uh, is what they call it. And it looks like a vape pen that, yeah. uh, has a little button on it and a little antenna apparently, and that he can project her anywhere now and she can travel freely and not be tied to this one projector, which it goes from like, Oh, that makes sense to like, where the hell are the beams coming from to create her? I don't know. It doesn't make any sense. The emanators in his pocket, but I'll go with it because I think it's character wise. It's kind of a beautiful little moment between two fake people like he's yeah. a replicant and she's a hologram later on they, they think there's a great point where they point out that humans are made of four letters 
Gattaca mm-hmm. and computers are made of two numbers. Are we really that different? Right. Um, Anna de Armas in general, uh, stunningly beautiful. And so far from what I've seen of her in this and knives out really good actor. Yeah. Um, obviously I hadn't, I hadn't seen this yet and I was surprised, uh, because I did not recognize her, uh, on the poster for this. Like, mm, I the, didn't recognize her with her first hairdo that she walks into the room with. Yes. It wasn't until she like flashed once or twice. And then I was like, Oh, knives out. Okay. Yep. That was the same response I had. And I've seen that picture of her as the big hologram later, uh, a bunch of times because people have used it a lot where she's purple mm. and blue and bending down and he's that standing was an on upsetting that bridge. moment. Yeah. It's re- to- it's really like, that's what I found to latch onto is there's actual like emotional, uh, arc for the, that relationship that you can chart. I think their stuff is some of the, their relationship is one of the strongest aspects of this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, the idea later on that, I guess I assumed that maybe he had created her or somehow like the subconscious, the, the device reads your mind and kind of produces a woman based on like your specific type or something. But later when you see that she's like a generic model mm-hmm. that anyone can buy and own, it it sucks some of the magic out of their romance, or it 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 resets you that like oh wait, but this is still fucked up. This world where these love bots are like being sent out there. And yeah, there's a lot of I think that's definitely some of the strongest things is that discussion of what what constitutes reality and what's not. If something is synthetic, does that mean that it doesn't exist or that its emotions are not real? I mean, does does it matter if you're in love with an AI, if you still get the exact same feelings of love that you would from a human? Right. Uh, And I think it does a good job proposing those questions in this. And the idea that the two of them have a relationship, that moment on the bridge later managed to, like, hit me in two different ways. The the sadness of... uh, her the generic one using the same nickname for him and you realize that they just call everybody joe and it plays back to um, scenes you might have seen from uh movies set during the vietnam war where the the sex workers would call the american uh soldiers joe right gi joe uh if you watch something like uh it might be an full, apocalypse now or full metal jacket. Full metal jacket, yeah. Yeah. Um that they, they say, hey Joe, and they always call him Joe. And you realize like there's this chain uh, and she is just a sex worker, essentially, and one without a soul or a thought in her own head. But still but he lost her during is she his though? Right, right. Because I, I still buy into it. Like I still, yes. I know that she's generic, and I know that, but I still believe that her love is real, even if she's programmed to behave certain ways. That t- I, I still believe in the reality of her existence. Yeah, and I think the, uh, I don't know. It could either be 
you could look at it from like the more nihilistic point of view or the more romantic one. And I feel like the the one that I choose to go with is the more romantic one when he is on that bridge in that moment and he sees the the generic version of her um, that it reminds him of everything he lost when he lost his personal one and it propels him into the action at the end of the story that there is something worth living and fighting for um, and he chooses love more than revolution he chooses familial affection over you know causing a, a riot essentially mm. oh that's interesting yeah i there's there's a lot to talk about here and uh who wrote this hampton fan fan fancher Fancher, Fancher, Hampton Fancher, uh, who was the writer for the original one, wrote it along with somebody named Michael Green, that I don't know his uh, credits. Yeah, I'm looking... Oh, shit, Michael Green wrote Logan and Alien Covenant. So, oh, okay. Yeah. I like... Oh, wait, no, I, I hate Alien Covenant. Excuse me. Oh. <laughs> I was going to say, I like both of those. No, Alien Covenant's bad. Oh, I like. I no. was more on board with Prometheus actually than I was with Covenant. I love Covenant, um, at least partially because of the the dual fastbenders uh, and Catherine Waterston, who I've got a major crush on. So, who's Catherine Waterston in that movie? She's the the main woman in it. In Covenant, yes. Hmm. She's also in Inherent Vice. But she's not. I'm I'm only thinking of Shepard from the first movie. They kind of look the same, right? She looks similar to Numi Rapace. No. (laughs) No, she does not. I sometimes think I have partial face blindness. I do, too. I often have that where I'm like, I don't recognize an actor. I'm horrible with voices. Elizabeth, we can be watching something. And every time Paul Rust is on something, she's like, oh, there's your friend. And then I have to look it up. I'm like, that's not really him. Oh, shit, it totally is. Have you ever gone on a date and then when you get home, you can't remember what her face looked like? Oh, I believe that there is a moment when you're getting to know someone, whether it's romantic or not, that their face opens up to you and it turns into their face. Before that, they're kind of generic and have a blank face a little bit. And there's a moment of getting to know people where it's like they enter into my heart or into my thoughts to such an extent that their face becomes their own. And then I can remember them. Wow, that's interesting. It's like your brain has an emotional checkpoint that has to be passed before it'll make space for someone. Yes. That's that's pretty cool. I've honestly been concerned before like... After the first date, God forbid there's a second date, but rarely it happens. <laughs> and I'm like, what if I don't recognize her or something? Oh, I have. Like, a... What if like, I approach the wrong woman at this cafe that we're meeting yes, at? Yes. <laughs> I have that professionally all the time, meeting uh, publicists and even artists, uh, because 
even if like I've featured pictures of these people on our website and I've actually looked at them, they still like disappear in my head. And then I have to go to a show or something. And I'm like, I am liable to walk right past the artist. Uh, And oddly enough, uh, just yesterday we went to a soccer game and uh, somebody recognized me, but didn't didn't say anything, which I'm thankful for. but they texted Elizabeth later and they were like, I saw Josh today and I was going to introduce myself, but I thought it would freak him out because he probably doesn't know who I am. But they recognized me from the Internet. Oh, weird. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that person made the right call. Yes, I would have been like, I don't know. what." I, I would have just gone along with it, though. They could have told me that I knew them from high school and I would have been like, sure. Yeah, why not? <laughs> um. Oh, so, all right, when he takes Anna Darvis outside and she's standing in the rain, and then they have that, like, really close moment where it looks like they're about to uh, ghost kiss. Yes. And then she freezes because he has an incoming call. Yes. That's really unsettling. And it broke the immersion of that moment in a way that, like, I did, I did not like on his behalf. Like, he was, you could feel him, like, being able to buy into this for just a moment, buy into this like moment of beauty where like, the woman that he might love gets to like experience rain and then, but then he's reminded that, Oh no, but she's an AI who can be frozen in a heartbeat. And we get the idea that Kay's life is not great. The, the other officers, when he goes to the, the police headquarters, um, they like bump shoulders with him. They call him a, I believe, a fucking skin job at one point. Uh, the there's graffiti on the door to his apartment uh, because he's a replicant and everybody knows it. Like in true noir fashion, he is a man without a country. He's not respected by humans because he's not human enough, and he's not respected by replicants because he hunts them down for his job. So he's a traitor, and. I think that that's his only real connections are to Lieutenant Joshi. <laughs> it's J O S H I. Wait, Heather, Heather Wright, Robin Wright, Robin. <laughs> Damn it! Something, some switch in my brain did not click today. I'm telling you, <laughs> Robin Wright. Uh... Yeah, but I mean, I, I I would exactly call her a friend when she's no. just like, "You're my robot. Go do my bidding." Yes, and um, and Joy, his his holographic girlfriend, like those are his his emotional connections that he has. I also think it's really interesting the way that um, there's a dichotomy with the way that the lieutenant treats him. And that uh, Wallace treats love his right hand uh, replicant. Like speaking of right hands, her name is Joy J O I, right? Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, well, listeners who don't know, I I I just learned this from a book. You know that in a book I read that uh, J O I stands for jerk off instruction, and it's a specific type of. Genre of pornography that 
her name completely fits if you think about his love life with her. Yep. Um, but again, I read that in a book, and that's neither here nor there. <laughs> uh, I was really happy to see that Coca-Cola and Atari are both thriving in 2049. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing will ever stop Coca-Cola. <laughs> Lord willing. <laughs> um, we next, he goes to um, whatever that library is with all the info of all the replicants. And this is where we learn about like the great blackout that it turned everything off for how long? 10 days? I didn't. Oh, I don't remember. Yeah. One it was of... something like that. Like, everything turned off for 10 days. And when shit came back online, every hard drive in the world had been wiped clean. And that idea of like, the guy's like, yeah, so the only money that was worth anything was paper money. Mm-hmm. But who has that anymore? So that like thinking about the idea, like the the how much of the global economy is in computers now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if if that goes down, like nobody has any real wealth anymore. It's just like MMORPG computer numbers. <laughs> right. Where everyone's just trying to like boost their stats and not get nerfed. Yeah, that's I, I totally I don't make money i make computer money that they send that i play with with plastic cards like (laughs) life is weird isn't it yes and then uh, i'm essentially just a funnel to take those bunches of of ones and zeros and transfer them to other corporations i am merely a midpoint on on this spectrum like that's not my money. I never owned it. I never touched it. It never actually enters my my domain. It's the weirdest thing. Society, huh? Yeah, we we live in a society. Um, <laughs> so that's it's not a um, it's not just the the record keepers place or the library. Um, the only people who own these records are the Wallace Corporation who took over for the Tyrell Corporation, who made the faulty replicants before. Uh, so the only way to track the, this stuff down, even the police don't have these records of the replicants, that's only, your only source is the corporation, which seems foolhardy, but also kind of like, yeah, we'd probably allow that as society. <laughs> Given how much Facebook controls of uh, our lives, I think it's it's kind of prescient. Oh, yeah. I think there's a lot of stuff that's pretty spot on in this movie, um, which is a very nihilistic view of just corporations continuing to take everything over, which seems pretty accurate based on how things are going. So um, 2049, so 28 years from now, I would be 63. Uh Uh-oh, I'm... God willing, I'm still around when this movie happens. Yeah. So I'm going to have to... I'm going to have to figure out something to do. And I live in California. Mm -hmm. You see how San Diego's in this movie. That was cool. The post-apocalyptic hellhole that is San Diego. (laughs) (laughs) They Uh, got that one right. No. San Diego one. Uh, he also somewhere in here he found out that the uh, they dug up the crate that was at Sapper's farm in the beginning, and now have a new lead because it uh, contained the skeleton of a woman who died in childbirth, but the child apparently survived. That's why he's going to track her down from the the uh, bones 
uh, serial numbers and hair that was left over. Uh, so and we listened to like a memory conversation that she has with Deckard. Yeah. And it, they go deeper and deeper, like into this compound where he's first at like the front desk and then he's in the stacks uh, that look like card catalog. And then he goes down into their storage areas where they have like this little uh, minority report ball that stores memories on them from those were minority report report balls. Yeah. That's totally what it made me think of. Yeah. Um, and this is where we meet love the, the right hand replicant of Nyander Wallace played by Jared Leto. Um, Leto Leto. Uh, I don't know, but this is Sylvia hoax hooks. Um, pretty badass antagonist villain henchman. Yes. I, I liked her performance a lot. Yes. Uh, and I think it still plays with the idea, uh, from both sides, we're getting like how much, uh, rain do these replicants get, right? Like, is she a real person? Does she have, have her own will? Uh, they're not supposed to be able to lie to, um, their owners, but at one point she says she's going to like, she seemingly has her own volition, which she's fighting against. She is fighting against the people trying to uncover that and trying to stand up for replicant rights. Um, yeah, for good reason, because as we see again and again in this movie, uh, replicants, it's not even that they're cyborgs or like Westworld where it's robots with human skin. These are bioengineered human beings, mm-hmm. though, that still have flesh and blood and seemingly completely functioning brains with emotional centers. And they can age. So the fact that Leto, as we see later <clears throat> in the scene where they that that shot where they walk into the room or the camera moves into the room and there's the new model replicant and it's a woman suspended in a plastic bag over the floor. Mm -hmm. And then she slides out of it like an otter pop. (laughs) That was like kind of a shocking image, Uh, just both in terms of the dehumanization, but then also like the factory nature and the alien birth method. I think it, it, it was very, very concerning. Yeah, it's like the the birth of these um, people. Uh, I mean, I'm going to side with the side that believes that they have emotions and should have their own free will now that we've created them. Um, but it's it's a commodified process. Like, it's really industrialized. And I think that the design of Wallace's uh, offices is very cool because you get it's very clean and modern and crisp looking but there is uh water reflecting all over the place so oh, the water reflections at the end of this movie oh my god yes and it's once again you're pushing against like this man-made structure against the nature of water and like it's almost like they're trying to force naturalism into this space to say that like we still appreciate this we still uh you know value 
this uh, nature, but we are making it work under our, our command and to our own ends. And uh, having to think about like water rights today, let alone in this post-apocalyptic type future, uh, what does it mean to have these giant pools of water for aesthetic reasons in your in your office? Yes, uh, it's just that extravagant show of wealth, but with water, essentially. It does seem to rain a lot and snow, but the whole time of this movie, when it's snowing, I'm like, is this snow or is this ash yes. raining down on them? And I feel like it's usually a really disgusting combination of both. Yes. Uh, the, the end oh, of... So yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, the end of this scene after... The replicant is birthed, and then uh, Wallace gives his little speech about trying to figure out the the key. He wants replicants to be able to procreate on their own so that he can send them out to off-world colonies, and they can set up sustainable colonies there, and he doesn't have to keep manufacturing them uh, because he can never meet demand. He's already established humanity on nine worlds but we should own the stars by now as he yes. puts it. But so he wants, he wants to give birth, but he wants these slaves to give birth so that he can still propagate the number of slaves he has, but without actually doing anything extra or having to make them himself at this point. Right. And yeah, this guy talking about like how humanity is, best things have been built by slave labor and we've lost the stomach for it and everything. Um, it, it, it's such like a disgusting corporate view of the world, but is very realistic of those like top, top 0.1% asshole elitist billionaires. Yes. Um, Leto's performance. He's really like controversial guy. I, I always thought he was really good in, um, um, Requiem, Requiem for a Dream. Yep, yep. And then the next thing I saw him in, I think, was I don't know, maybe Suicide Squad. I understand he deserves all, all the shit he got for that, but that movie in general is just awful. Uh, but people seem to really shit on the guy at every turn. I think he's great in this because it feels like he's he's manipulated his own body so much that it feels like half his consciousness is in the room with you. And the other half of his consciousness is somewhere inside of like a computer network. And so he just feels like this distant cyborg man who has plans for like the destruction of humanity, essentially by propagating our worst things that we do. So going back, um, I mean, he is someone who has been played with by directors, like, for his looks. Uh, the fact that in Fight Club, his character's name is Angel Face, and his is the beautiful face oh, that they yeah, want to destroy. Yeah. Like, he is the epitome of the, the modern man that they are trying to destroy, and they have to make him ugly in order to do it. Um, he's Paul, uh, in American Psycho, the, one of the other businessmen 
that Christian Bale is in competition with who has the beautiful uh, business cards. Mm. So he has seen kind of the perfection of Christian Bale's character is reflected in the Paul character as well as someone else who's striving on that level. Uh, he's one of the, the boyfriends, I believe, um, in uh, Girl Interrupted, or one of the, the interests, at least, in Girl Interrupted uh, from that same time. And then in Panic Room, he... Oh, Panic Room. He was yeah. the rich asshole kid who... Didn't he have dreads in that movie? Does he? Dreadlocks? I think he has... Cor- or not dreads, yes, cornrows. cornrows. Yes. Yeah. And he's like, Which is like the kid who's slumming it. Yeah, he's <laughs> such... But I think in all those, like he has played as they're playing off his physical appearance and his weird robotic nature. Um, I did not see chapter 27. Literally in a movie called Mr. Robot or something. He's in some movie where like he is a robot. Uh, Mr. Nobody. Mr. Yes, Yes. That was it. Yeah. Um, but uh, in chapter 27, which I have not seen, uh, he plays Mark David Chapman, uh, and he bulked up for the role. And I really, after seeing this, I kind of want to check it out just to see, acting-wise, what does he do with that? Where I do feel like he's got kind of a, not as charming as Keanu Reeves, but sort of that same sort of thing where it seems like he is hired to play a version of himself, essentially. Well, you heard it here, Jared. We're we're okay with you. So if you <laughs> want to come on the show, feel free anytime. We'll throw you a bunch of softball questions. It'll be great. We won't even bring up the squad tattoo that you got. Wait, did he get one? Well, all the Suicide Squad members, except for Will Smith when that movie came out six years ago or whatever, got squad tattooed, but it's S-K-W-A-D. Oh, wow. And they would, t- like, tattooed each other. <laughs> Will Smith was the only one who's like, nah. Ever since the Lord of the Rings people did it, that's the cool thing to do for... I know, but to have S-K-W-A-D tattooed on your body as a reminder of a universally panned and hated (laughs) movie. (laughs) There's some kind of like poetic justice in that, I think. Yeah. Also, Margot Robbie needs to tone it down. (laughs) Just just chill out, Margot. Please. (laughs) Just bring it down a little bit. The we've had enough Harley Quinn for a decade. Can we can we just let that character go away for a while? Oh, I like that. But my favorite thing about an egg sandwich is you gotta get the bread just right. <laughs> She's See, not wrong. They should, hire, they should hire me to do Harley Quinn. That's that's my real motive here. <laughs> um, throughout this movie, his his Wallace device, his phone or whatever, any times it rings, it has that little classical piece of music like. Um, whatever it's violins oh yeah yeah that's either from battle royale or old boy it's from one of those and it was driving me crazy because i have such a distinct like connection to that song with one of those movies um god and i had looked it up too what the theme was um because it is 
uh, gosh dang it. I wish I knew more about classical music because I do like it. I just I just watched Amadeus yesterday with my Sunday morning movie club. Mm-hmm. Three hours. Didn't need to be three hours. Good, good movie. Did not need to be three hours. Uh, I have not seen that movie in many years, but I remember loving it. Uh, um, I also, think maybe I liked Tom Hulse and his crazy acting. It is crazy. Um, the makeup, the old man makeup on F. Murray Abraham. I just couldn't shake the feeling that he was undead. Or that he was like a Resident Evil character or a living corpse. or something. The makeup that they did to make him look old didn't do it for me. Uh, the Wallace theme is Peter and the Wolf. That's what it is. Hmm. And, I mean, I should have remembered that. Did you not do in maybe kindergarten or first grade, learn about musical themes because Peter and the Wolf has every character assigned to a an instrument and a musical theme that goes along with it. Really? Yes. That's cool. Yeah. And so like it it was the way that they taught us that music can tell a story. Wow. Yeah. Well now I want to pay more attention to that. Yeah, I think there's, um, oh God, who was the guy, um, like a PBS lecture, uh, that was famous that, that used that. Hmm. Um, so next Ryan Reynolds, God damn it. Ryan Gosling. I feel like you're just doing it now on purpose. (laughs) I'm I'm not. (laughs) He goes back. To Dave Batista's house, looks at the tree at the bottom of the tree. He sees six ten twenty one scrawled into it, and uh, it seems to six six ten June tenth. Also, my birthday. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, but this movie goes by the European dating method, so it's actually October sixth. Oh, son sorry. of a bitch! <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, you only have to tell me your birthday, like three or four more times and i promise you i'll remember i've worked it into at least three episodes (laughs) (laughs) and i still if you had asked me when's my birthday Uh i would have had you're like no i don't know the (laughs) fall sometime well i know it's not the fall because it just happened okay (laughs) he also burns the house down um back at the um the archive for all of the data, we see that um, Love is over there with poor Coco. I recognize Coco from something, I don't know what, but she hits that guy, she's taking the bones, he tries to stop her. She hits him so hard in the back of the neck or skull that he just bleeds from every orifice in his face. It's a gnarly kill. So, uh, Coco... It's played by David Desmalchain, who is That's ha- a mouthful. He is having a year right now. The, he was in uh, Suicide Squad as Polka Dot Man. He, oh, that yeah. yeah. He, he's in Dune. Um, he's in The Dark Knight. Uh, he's a. He was also in Prisoners. He's 
Uh, I think he plays one of the creepy dudes in Prisoners. Um, Need to rewatch Prisoners. That's the only Villeneuve movie that I had seen up until uh, Dune. Uh, And he was in Twin Peaks, The Revival. So the dude has had been on the come up for a while, but the last couple of years have been very good for David Death Malchain. Wow. Good for him. He was, um, uh, he was, he was really good in suicide squad, the new one. Yes, And it seems like people, uh, he, he had a pretty universally liked performance. So good for him. I love when I see an actor, actress kind of blow up and have, um, have like a landmark career year similar to uh noho hank i can't think of that guy's name from barry oh um, yes he's he's w- before covid he was really blowing up and starting to appear in a lot of stuff that's i i love uh character actors like frequently more than stars i think the the oh that guy from movies and they get turned into memes or stars on their own right because when I was growing up, Steve Buscemi was was that guy. When he was in uh, Lebowski and Fargo, uh, Garland Green, man, he wore one woman's head as a hat through three states. <laughs> I've oh, seen Con Air a lot. Now my dogs are doing it. Can you hear him? Yeah. That's Hank. I hear I hear everything that goes on in your house. I don't, <laughs> it doesn't seem to come through on the edit. Maybe it's because of the gate. But when we're on the Zoom, yeah. I hear it all. <laughs> yeah, Hank is... I don't know what he's barking at. They see... They, they frequently see... Oh, shit. They see uh, people walking past and feel like they should talk to them. Mm. Um, my next note is about... Uh, Gosling talking, um, thinking about a memory that he has mm-hmm. with the horse, and so he says that is this. He's talking to the creator, right? This is when he goes to the imagination lady and asks her about implanted memories. Um. Well, he first he realized that uh, the horse uh, sculpture from his memories. He goes and finds it in the. Uh, the furnace room of a uh, orphanage. And so oh, like, yeah. he, so the, the, the implanted memory is real. Yes. He has physical Which, proof that his implanted memory was real. His boss at the time is he, she asked him for a memory and she says, basically I'm ordering you to tell me your memory. And so he tells her that like, as a kid, I had a horse kid. The other kids wanted it. So I hid it. And then they beat the shit out of me. And she's like, Hmm, that's a nice memory about a kid standing up for something that he believes in. Like, how is that a nice memory? <laughs> why, why would you implant that memory into somebody? Of like, of all the different ways you could teach somebody like the way to stand up for something, you do it by having them have like relive childhood trauma of getting assaulted. <laughs> right. Uh, also, his. I mean, in the memory, his horse is like his one thing. Um, I feel like that's echoed with his connection with Joy when she gets destroyed later. Uh, You know what? This is such a ripoff of Son-in-Law. Because in Son-in-Law, Juliette Lewis goes to college and she only has (gasps) like a little marble horse that she takes with her. Yes. This movie ripped it off. 
when I went to college, I took my Winnie the Pooh that I had had from childhood uh, that my daughter now has. But I was so worried that something bad would happen to it. Oh God, I was worried you were about to tell me a horror story. When you said that my daughter now has, I was relieved. Um, so, yeah, this is... Now he has a conversation. Hang on, let me yell at the dog. Yeah. So we jumped a little ahead. Um, so he's flying down to San Diego and they shoot his plane down with a harpoon gun that mm. has a metal kite attached to it, which then causes it to get zapped by electricity. I thought that was so preposterous, but yes. really cool. I, I loved it. Um, so he's about to get um, beaten up or killed by the junkyard people. And then out of nowhere, a UAV starts dropping bombs on them. Um, what a commentary on the horribly fucked up dehumanized nature of war that we currently have, where she's getting a manicure as she's killing people with drones. And just the fact that, like, remember when that study came out that, like, there was, like, drone pilots, at, like, operating out of a strip mall mm -hmm. or something like that? Like, Jesus Christ, it's a next level of, like, dehumanization how do we get people to kill without feeling anything uh, it, truly terrifying and awful um, I've also seen reactions online where people are calling into question the, the movie's politics itself by uh, the fact that the uh, the manicure the manicurist in this scene is one of the only Asian people that you see in the film. Uh, and later, the uh, only blackface that you see is the guy running the orphanage, which is essentially a sweatshop. And that it does not paint minorities in the best of light. However, I would argue that depiction does not equal uh, condoning something. And that it's not an endorsement of those things, but it's a reflection of the racism that is inherent in society as we live and only continues and propagates into the future. That's well said because I don't, I don't feel any racist intent. I feel like this movie is leaning pretty hard and trying to force people to see humanity mm -hmm. in other people and trying to get you to realize that Everyone has feelings, whether whether or not you think you're the same species or thing or whatever. It's it's all valid and it's all real. And um, okay, also Morgan from the more this is I I don't know his name, but it's yeah. Morgan from The Walking Dead. Yes, uh, great actor. I also think of him from Snatch, and he's so funny <gasps> in Snatch. Oh shit! Yeah, he's Saul. I have not connected those those dots before. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this is where he finds that horse, and we find out that the the 
memories are real. And now he goes to the immunocompromised girl who's been locked away since she was eight years old. And she's the creator of memories for all of the replicants. And when it, um, when it hard cuts to the forest that she's created, mm-hmm. and she's just in this green world, and we hear bugs and birds, it was so obviously fake right off the get-go because nothing exists like that in this movie. But it was still shocking to suddenly, there's like no green, no life in this movie. Right. And suddenly to just be flooded with sunshine and green leaves was a pretty stunning moment. The um, way this scene plays out, the, they're trying to play with you a little bit. And this is where it definitely uh, hit me that. I mean, we're going to talk about it, but she is the replicant child that was born of replicant and was raped. Why does she cry when she reads his memory? I think that she doesn't know what is hers, but it hits her that it is a meaningful memory. I think she's been lost in this world of creating them for so long. Cause that was her, that was her memory of hiding the horse. Yes. But maybe she's lived in the world of imagination for so long that, yeah, this like strikes something in her, but she doesn't quite know why or what. Yeah. And I feel like it, <clears throat> but the thing is the way that she says, he asks if it's a real memory and she says, someone lived this. Yes, this happened she doesn't explicitly tell him that you lived this mm. or that this happened to you, um, which was that, was that when you picked, like, when did this movie turn for you? It had already, I had already known that it wasn't going to be him because he believes it's him. Um, okay. I was like, there's going to be a twist. And then when we meet her and she says that it was just made sense to me that, the character who can tell you if it's real or not is the one like that. Like she's the key to it. It just made sense that she would be the key to it in the, in the end. Um, so it just kind of worked out that way. Gotcha. Um, well, after this, we see him like snap, uh, which is like, he kicks the chair and it's one of the few times he shows, like the emotion starting to break through his programming or conditioning, whatever has happened to him. Uh, He goes back to the police station and his baseline test is way off. And his boss says, I can get you out of the building, but you have 48 hours. That sounds like if you fail your baseline test too many times, you're going to be decommissioned or killed. It seems. Yeah. Well, and I think the way uh, this is the, the echo of, the scene with Wallace and the, the newly birthed replicant, right? Like when he determines that these replicants can't procreate, he guts that one. He kills her immediately because she's not going to be useful to him. Uh, and I feel like it's the same thing here, even though she seems to like Kay, he's just a tool. He's just, in a means to an end. He doesn't actually have any value as a person. So 
the system is going to spit him back out, and she buys him a little bit of time. Well, with that little bit of time, he's about to have some kinky sex. <laughs> uh, goes home. Anna de Armas has hired that sex worker who he had talked about, who had talked to earlier, and says that I saw that you liked her. Uh, I like how they meld together. This part, there's a lot of real cool sci-fi shit in this movie, and I, I really dug the execution of this and how it, how offsetting it was to be having sex with two people at the same time like that where like they're ghosting back and forth and their faces are kind of transitioning and sometimes merging together and it's very unsettling and then especially where uh, it cuts from this to the Anna de Armas billboard yeah and so the fact that like we finally have this moment where their love can become physical and real and or not real but they can physically express that love to then counteract that by then showing the billboard and that she's just, she's a generic program model that you can buy in the store. Um, really undercuts it in a, a great way. Yeah. And it once again, makes you question like you either accept that she's only doing as she is programmed or does she, has she developed her own will and this is what she's doing? Have you seen Ex Machina? Yes. Ex Machina is basically like this yeah. portion of the story expanded. Excellent movie. Highly, highly recommend. If you haven't seen Ex Machina and you're interested in this idea of like, where does consciousness become reality? Um, check it out. Uh, also, Oscar Isaac dancing. Yeah. Yeah. Also, Oscar Isaac drinking heavily and then working out in the mornings. Yeah. Yes, he's so sweaty. <laughs> I can attest, that doesn't seem to be how it works for me. <laughs> um, so, uh, Anna de Armas gets taken offline, so she exists only on the USB stick at this point because he doesn't want her to be tracked via the network is the reason. And um, since she has been so integrated with him, she has a lot of his memory. And he's he has told her specifically about the the memory, the horse uh, figurine memory. So he's worried that, uh, or she's worried that they could track him. And he's worried that he not only has one copy of her that could be destroyed and she doesn't live in the cloud. Gotcha. At this point, they go to Doc Badger, played by Barkad Abdi, and they show him the horse. And it, I like this part where it's like, holy shit, that's real wood. <laughs> Where'd yeah. you get this? And basically, this thing is heavily irradiated, so irradiated that it could only come from one place. And uh, yeah, we're moving right along now. Uh, the next scene I have is in the, the police uh, office. Mm -hmm. with the boss and the the clone or the replicant yes when uh love the replicant visits the lieutenant and starts to interrogate her interrogate uh, crushes a glass in her hand yes. this is one of those movie injuries that's easy to imagine and makes it so much worse 
Yeah. The way, so she's holding like a, a glass of whiskey or something and the replicant squeezes her hand until the glass shatters and then just keeps squeezing it. And you see like the glass and blood dripping out of her hand. And it's so much Robin more effective Wright than a shot. Like a badass. Yeah. And Robin Wright kind yes. of takes it like a badass. Well, um, I think, I think it's interesting also uh, how kind of like in the previous movie, when we see these actors, they come with their own weight and history. Right. And it's like Robin Wright um, has gone from being literally everybody's princess early sure. on to uh, going through House of Cards, where she is a very forceful, powerful woman. Um, That's how I see her. Yeah. I see her still as like the Claire Underwood, cold, calculating terrifying sociopath kind of person yeah and you see the way that she's made up in this where it's very harsh and stark uh i mean she's a very attractive woman uh but her her style like her hair is pulled straight back she's like no nonsense uh very kind of gruff and to the point police captain type person uh that she's portrayed as and so when this kind of little battle ensues. Um, it's great. And I wish that she didn't die in this sequence. Cause I, I feel like she's such a good, cool character. Yeah. I get uh, the performance by uh, Sylvia hoax is love. I think is great. The moment where she has tears streaming down her face as she's killing her. And I don't even know why. Because mm -hmm. it doesn't even look like she has emotion going through her, but she she has tears going down her face. That, for some reason, creeped me out. Just this, <laughs> this like, cyborg woman that's somewhere maybe has emotions that are somehow trying to get out, but she's so just conditioned to her job and only her job that there's nothing else except execution of tasks. Yeah, I I think well that part of her that is essentially doing things for uh, Wallace, but not for her own best interest, uh, is uh, that that's a struggle. Like that's such a battle within her. I feel like, and that's what we're seeing. Um, yes. So we're moving on to. Kind of like the last little bit of this movie here as we go to the city with the orange skies. I don't know if you've seen this footage, but in 2020, when we had fires out here, mm -hmm. the Bay Area turned completely orange. The sky was orange. Everything was orange and red. It was one of the most unsettling things I've ever seen. If you go on YouTube, there's a lot of videos where it's Blade Runner San Francisco. And there's just static shots that people took, <laughs> and it it one of it's the most surreal weather event I've ever experienced mm -hmm. was just living in an orange world that felt like you were in a Illinois movie. Um, years ago, uh, what would, would it be like nineteen years ago, maybe nineteen twenty years ago, when I lived in Colorado, uh, there were some horrible fires. Uh, 
and we had to go through one of the areas shortly after the fires had burned out and the the devastation afterwards of the landscape i mean it hurts my heart a little bit that they they pull from that kind of stuff for these uh to make it realistic but it really is like all of the trees look like the tree at sapper's farm that they're dead and stunted and um haunting looking they just it's it was upsetting and surreal and oddly beautiful i think decay and death like has a beautiful quality that we don't normally see every day and so when you see it replicated on the screen it it has a weight to it yeah like in stalker all that decay as humanity slowly gets consumed again by nature after we've left it creates some really beautiful and haunting images um yeah so we're going to uh we're going to meet a new character here in a minute i really wish he hadn't been on the poster like i yeah <laughs> i i hear you man i mean it's the fact that they were playing audio clips, I feel like it's obvious that Harrison was going to be in this. Yes. But still, it would have been fun to have that, like, oh, shit moment in theater. Yeah. Uh, the whole sequence here, I feel like, is so beautifully constructed, uh, where it goes from uh, Kay investigating the the front area of this ca- casino to the confrontation with uh, Deckard to the inside of the nightclub area in the casino with the the holographic Elvis. uh, How do you feel about holographic artists in general? uh, I mean, I don't understand it as a phenomenon in real life. Um, Hatsune Miko or whatever it is. Uh, Like what's yeah. Are you talking about like Twitch? Like, uh, oh, because there's Twitch channels where there's, like, AI cartoons or something. I, I don't understand what's happening in this world. Oh, I didn't know that that was a thing. It's, like, some of the top Twitch broadcasters. I don't know if it's somebody controlling, like, a character. I I don't know. I don't know. The, the world's getting real weird, and I'm starting to fall behind. <laughs> so... Uh, Hatsune Miku, uh, my daughters were into her, uh, a few years ago. Um, she is a, a synth who is played, I believe in concerts by animation and, uh, holograms. Uh, yeah, that, yes, which I am so confused because... It's so we're just listening to it's like watching a movie, but (laughs) it's a live music performance of or like when Tupac, yeah. And then you have like the whole idea of just like the notion, like, is this cool? Is this okay? Would Tupac be cool with you doing this now? Right, I I don't know. I've never seen a hologram 
perform. <laughs> maybe maybe in person it's different, but technologically speaking, it's amazing. But artistically speaking, what's the merit? Yes, but I'm also of the opinion um, if I go to see a live show and the artist puts on a highly choreographed show where they sound um, just like the record, I don't care. Like, I'm not there for a, a giant spectacle uh, that, auditorially speaking, is the same as sitting and listening to the MP3 at home. I don't want that. I want to see musicianship and passion on display through uh, working your art. If I want to see a big stage show, that's like a Broadway musical to me. It's a different thing that than I want out of a musical artist normally. Yeah, because I think the magic of live music is the fact that these sonic vibrations are being created there and can only be experienced one time there live. Mm -hmm. And then when you just have pop stars lip syncing, like, okay, so I'm listening to an MP3 and then watching you run around on stage and yeah, <laughs> I'd rather go to ballet or something and see see something orchestrated like that. Yeah, and the idea of uh, it doesn't excite me to be in the same room, uh, especially if that room is a massive arena, as a famous person. Like, I, I don't know, man. What if Fred Ward was in the same room? <laughs> I would, I would lose my mind. As most famous people, how's that? <laughs> I, I'm with you though. Yeah, like uh, celebrity worship is a strange phenomena, and there are people. I mean, probably the uh, biggest venue we have here is our hockey arena or the football stadium. Uh, that's probably the biggest. Uh, and I've been there when it's ugh, probably over half full for uh, uh, CMA Fest. Say, like 25,000 plus? Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, yesterday at the, at the soccer game, uh, there was 26,000, and that only filled up the bottom row. Like, wow. We you guys have an MLS team? Yes. 26,000 for MLS is pretty damn good. Yeah, I don't know. They're building a new stadium for next year, and... I'm looking at uh, doing some season tickets for it because be fun. I think it's, I, I've loved every soccer game I've gone to this year. It's been great. And I even went before they were uh, MLS uh, when they were still in the, the minor league or whatever they call the non premier league. Uh, I think it was still called MLS. Okay. Minor league soccer. <sighs> Do you like toasted cheese? <laughs> Harrison Ford's like, I miss cheese. Toasted cheese, especially. I'm like, I'm with you there because my mom would always make us toasted cheese. So you just take a piece of bread, toast it a little, throw it under a broiler with some cheddar cheese and garlic salt. Oh, it's the best. It's like the best comfort food in the world. Uh, isn't that whole, is that whole quote from Treasure Island? The cheese thing? Yes. 
Uh, I don't know. I know part of the quote was from Treasure Island, but I've never read it. Yeah. Sarah, you're telling me that Deckard doesn't like cheese. He might be. I think it's both. I think he does miss cheese uh, because apparently all he has is millions of bottles of whiskey. That's and that's a lot of whiskey. <laughs> you said he might be, and I said vegan. <laughs> just, I need to stop. <laughs> I need to stop today. I've been real wound up today. It's too, you get punchy. I think I just. I think it's like the two week break after horror movie month, and yeah, this show. This show is meant to be a bi weekly show, <laughs> and by that I mean two episodes per week. Uh, I like that Harrison Ford pours a little bit of whiskey for the dog and Kay is like is the dog real and he's like what is is, does he say don't know or don't care one or the other Uh, and then he says ask it oh yeah ask him (laughs) Um, god when they're sitting at the bar having these drinks together holy shit Harrison Ford is devouring this scenery oh my god with his growl that Mm -hmm. he has he still has it like i this this movie is like oh my god i forgot i didn't forget but just haven't seen harrison ford in a while dude was so good yeah holy shit and when you see him on talk shows and thing um i i think in real life all harrison ford wants to do is get high and fly his plane like he does not give a shit he doesn't seem to be invested in any of the uh, the franchises that he's involved with and has made famous throughout throughout the years. He could give a shit. Like he's still that dude who stumbled into stardom, uh, and it was actually just a carpenter. I feel like that's who he is. Uh, so to actually see him bring it on this level. Uh, where, I mean, Ryan Gosling isn't a slouch. No, but Harrison Ford's allowed to have emotion. Yes. And which he does. Yeah. Wow. Wow, wow. And he seems to have, like, there's an undercurrent of regret and anger, and uh, but also that he has given up, like, all playing underneath the surface of their interaction. Um, and he's basically, he is the 25 year older version of K. You know, he's did, just gone through that much more life. Did you get the feeling that Harrison Ford could beat the shit out of you in this uh, stage? Like true old man strength yeah. in a way that like, um, like when he's punching Gosling earlier. Yes. Like, those would collapse my face. <laughs> just old man strength dude. he looks great he looked really really good in this didn't he he actually uh punched ryan gosling though oh did he clock him once yeah ah funny there's uh and i think they used it like uh at least part of it because it's it was shocking and i think gosling was like <laughs> like i got fucking got hit like i got rocked <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, Gosling puts a quarter in a jukebox and it's 
who is it, Dean Martin or uh, Sinatra? Sinatra. <laughs> Smoking cigarettes while you're crooning on stage, that just cracks me up. <laughs> just standing there with the cigarette in one hand, singing about making love in the other. Uh, the You would love um, all that jazz because uh, Roy Scheider has a cigarette in his mouth practically the entire movie. And when he's in the shower, he's smoking. Uh, when he's teaching people to dance, he's smoking. <laughs> it's great. Um, so how did they track him? Because they tracked him down, and earlier in this movie, the sex worker had put something in Gosling's pocket. But I don't think that's... Somehow love tracks them down here. So... um he, for some reason, is still on the police data bank, and she tracks him through that after she kills the lieutenant. Uh, mm. And oh, okay. And then uh, the the sex worker and the replicant rebellion league, uh, or whatever they are, track him through the little um, homing beacon that they put in his pocket, which. Uh. Uh, that was one moment when they find him and then she pulls that back out of his pocket and like shows it to the camera. And I was like, we didn't need that. Like, I already know how she got there. Like, right. Yeah. 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 Uh, one guy makes a real dumb move cause he has a gun and he has the drop on Ryan Gosling. But instead of standing a couple feet away, he <laughs> walks right up behind him and <laughs> literally touches the back of his head with the pistol. If you're going to hold someone up, stay a few feet away. That's yeah. just a little Nashville CA advice for you aspiring <laughs> criminals out there. Um, in my notes here, I had very good dog. I love this dog. Uh, and Why do you have that note? Uh, because Harrison Ford's dog is, is padding around the place uh, when they come under attack there. Oh, and there's, thought... there's like a close-up of him um, right when the sounds come up uh, after the jukebox scene and I was like I like that dog it's a good dog this dog makes it right yes because I don't think we ever see uh, well I was upset for a second because I thought the dog was going to get hurt and yeah. then I realized that it wasn't going to but I hate seeing when a good hideout gets blown up like this was such a cool location yes and this wasn't just a hideout Harrison Ford is like, well, if I'm going to live somewhere, I might as well live at like a multi-billion corporate headquarter. Yes. He's like got the top floors of this casino to himself. And uh, it, like it looks out over the whole city and uh, the love her people come in and they're a little convoy and shoot his spinner car that they're going to escape in and blow it up. Um, Kay catches some shrapnel in his gut. This is like the beginning of him really getting fucked up for the rest of the movie. Like, yeah, it's nonstop for him downhill at this point. Yeah. Um, but the dog is there, uh, afterwards is, is he's knocked out because love. They realize that, uh, K doesn't really matter because he's already led them to Deckard and he's the real prize. Yeah. They drive Deckard away. And unfortunately, Love sees his vape pen. Ugh. She sees the Anadarmus pen. You know what's funny? I have in my notes, 
did Josh feel anything when Anna Darmus gets killed? <laughs> and it's so clear. <laughs> I just, I thought oh. maybe, maybe you were one of those people that would just like, oh, she's a robot. It, <laughs> no, I'm glad you're not one of those. No, it was, and I already, I already know the answer to this question. <laughs> Oh. But looking at that note now really makes me laugh. That's so, great. Josh, did you feel anything? Oh, it was so sad. Her little, the fact that she's reaching out as if she can stop it from happening. Like, she's just a bundle of, of light being emitted. She doesn't have any physical presence, as we've seen over and over again. But she still reaches out as if she's trying to prolong her life. And to get one last. I love you. Yes. Her last moment of existence. Um, tough. Yeah. And this is, uh, what happened now the resistance people show up Yep, and free him. And this, I thought was especially fucked up. His girlfriend just got killed, literally erased. And who does he see? But the woman who physically embodied his girlfriend and he had sex with her. So not only has he lost his girlfriend, but now he's being confronted by, like, her physical embodiment ghost kind of... It's super fucked up. Yeah. Like, there's a weird switching of the physical form is more ghostly and foreign to him than the the holographic form would have been. Uh, And I think it's one of those things, like, it's sad and it drives him uh, through this last portion of the movie. I feel like. Yeah. So he meets, uh, they bring out a woman with one eye and it's Marsha from succession. Uh, <laughs> nice. It's Brian Cox's wife. From yes. the show. Um, I don't really, I didn't really understand who she was. Uh, she is part of a replicant liberation army. I got that. Um, Why is her eye gone? Oh, because that's where their external uh, serial number was. Oh, so she can't be tracked yes. by voluntarily removing her eye? Yes. Uh, gotcha. Because um, that was um, what he did to Sapper in the in the first scene. The missing eye effect is not great. No, it reminded me a little bit of Hollow Man. Which, yeah, and it, it was 20 years ago. Yep. Um, God, Hollow Man. That was a fucked up movie, but I think if I rewatched that now, I'd be pretty blown away by the some of the effects. I don't know. It still I seems it's a little rapey that movie. Yes, there we go. <laughs> so this, when she tells him that it wasn't him. But, oh, but you poor baby, you imagined that you were the one? Oh, sweetheart, we all imagined we were the one. Just, oh, Ryan Reynolds, god damn it. Come on, get your shit together. <laughs> Gosling <laughs> is just getting crushed emotionally and physically, like, left, right, and center for the last 20 minutes of this movie. Yeah, it's, there's no uh, refuge for him at this point. It is. It's all all out. And the fact that he um, still decides to do what he does, I think, is it's very human and heroic in in his final acts, uh, both in 
going after Deckard and then in uh, setting him free, essentially. Yeah. So we get the the scene now with Deckard and uh, Wallace. And again, like what we said, the just the the gold reflection of the water mm-hmm. on the walls and the fact that there's different shape water reflections depending yes. on if you're looking at Deckard or Wallace. There's there's also a shot earlier in this movie where there's they're walking down a stairway, uh, Gosling and someone else, and there's like a shaft of light that mm-hmm. follows them down the stairs. The lighting, this movie was a labor of love. There's so much going on in so many of these shots that must have taken days to set up. Uh, the In the scene that just happened, um, there's a shaft of light behind Kay, and when uh, the leader of the rebellion woman, it, it, it's very much like, it reminds me of the scene from the matrix when the Oracle tells Neo that he's not the one, uh, but then he chooses to be the one anyway. Uh, but when this woman tells Kay that he's not the child, he literally sits down from this shaft of light and his silhouette disappears into the shadow behind. Like, he is lost in the darkness. And I'm like, that's such a great visual representation. Like, I don't need to... It's telling the story pictographically. I don't need to hear it. I know what just happened. Yeah, this is a Roger Deakins shot movie, which he came up on our discussion with Umar, I think. I don't remember why we were talking about Deakins, but... Um, did we, cause is that, did we talk about Deacons' podcast a little bit? Uh, no, but I got Brian Deacons confused with Dean Cundy. Oh. That's why I remember it. Cause it was a moment of embarrassment. Okay. Got I it. don't remember the good things about the show. I only remember <laughs> the times I embarrassed myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, it feels like, uh, Denis Villeneuve, uh, really liked Deacons' work on Skyfall. And took out two or three shots from that and was like, hey, can we make a whole movie that looks like this shot? (laughs) Hmm. I haven't seen it. You haven't seen The Skyfall? I've only seen The Casino Royale. Okay. Uh, Yeah. Just not really a spy guy. I don't know. Even that most recent Mission Impossible, Fallout, I loved it in theater. And then I was going to try to watch it at home a couple months later and I was just like ah this is too laborious there's like eight scenes of stunts that I want to watch but <laughs> I don't want to deal with two hours of international espionage ooh so you would not be on the the Matt Gorley train of sitting and watching um, like Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy over and well, over well it's again. funny you mention that because I've been talking with uh, someone on discord about watching that one together. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think George and I were maybe thinking of watching that because we just watched Solaris together. Oh, yeah, yeah. So now we're thinking of our next long movie to watch. And I've meant to watch that one for a while. And um, yeah, they do say that one's real slow and a lot of just kind of conversations and stuff, right? Yes. But, but to- I might be into it. I don't know. 
to me, it was it was thrilling. Um, when I was watching Chernobyl, it reminded me of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Where, I love Chernobyl. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't have the real world weight, obviously, but yeah, but both deal with nukes. Nukes. Yes. I didn't say that word right. Nukes. Nukes. Um. Yeah. So, um, I don't know if you have anything else with this scene with Leto and Ford. Um. I mean, I think it's really beautifully shot. Um. This is where I wrote down that uh, I appreciate uh, Villeneuve's, we can say it different every single time. Uh, <laughs> we have. Love of striking imagery. Uh, movies are normally cut too fast. This movie basks in these images. Um, the sequence is really mesmerizing. And this is where Wallace trots out a r- replica of the Rachel replicant as she existed yeah. in the first movie. This was a bummer. <sighs> I also, again, my ex-girlfriend was named after Rachel. Oh, okay. So the whole time I'm watching this, I'm just like, oh shit, there she is. <laughs> Oof. <laughs> uh, but I don't, did they, do you know if they cast someone and just made her up to look like Rachel? It did not look like a... A CGI de-aging kind of thing. So it's a combination. Okay. They, they uh, That was kind of my guess, maybe. Yeah. They took um, Sean Young's face from the first movie. Is and... she still alive? Yes. Okay, that was one of my concerns, because it almost felt like they were memorializing the character, but I was hoping they weren't also memorializing the actress. Yeah, and... Uh... It's weird because I had the same qualms I did in the uh, in Halloween Kills in the beginning when you see Donald Pleasance. Mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, which was an entirely practical effects, which I really appreciate, and that's amazing. Uh, and they just got an impersonator. So actually, the uh, the Elvis, the Sinatra. The Marilyn Monroe are all played by impersonators, um, as Whoa. is this Sean Young, which I to see the it's kind of genius that they yeah did that because they they kind of pull the wool over the audience's eyes of I just thought they manipulated Marilyn Monroe footage or whatever I don't know right so the fact that it's all fake but I still. Even though it was synthetic, I still bought that as actually Sinatra or yep. Monroe. Kind of proves the whole point of the debate in this movie. Um, and Sean Young, apparently, I don't know if it was on set or, or beforehand, but she coached the woman on how to behave like her from the movie. So, like, she was the woman's acting coach who portrayed the younger version of herself, and then they used a sound alike for her voice. I mean, she only has, like, two lines, but... Oh, okay. Well, that's cool. I'm, I'm glad that um, she was still involved. Yeah, I think she's... I don't know what her credit wound up being, but she's got... She's credited on the film. I don't know yeah. if it was a consultant or as an actor, but yeah. Um, yeah. What'd you think of the moment 
her eyes were green. She had green eyes. Um, I love the fact that he, I mean, you, once you know your person's face, you don't forget it. You know, like once it does become imprinted on you, I think it's there for forever in some way, shape or form. And he's looking at this version of her that would exactly match his memory of her. Like he hasn't seen her in the past 20 some years. Right. And so this would have been her. Uh, And I like that uh, Jared Leto's character doesn't know everything that he got it wrong. I really like that fact. Yeah. um, I was curious where the mistake came from. If it was like, uh, if it was just a record thing or if they were trying to pull her cell, her out of Harrison Ford's memories. And because memory is slightly flawed, that was why I, I wasn't quite sure, but Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I know, because earlier they talk about the, the records being, like, fractured. Even the physical records were screwed up during the um, during the blackout. Oh, good call. Yeah, so it must come from something like that. Yeah, they would have had an incomplete record of, of her either written or her ones and zeros that made her up. Yeah. So, of course, they immediately execute fake Rachel, Ugh. which is still a person that they're... <laughs> this movie's fucked up, man. <laughs> um, now, what does Wallace... He sends Deckard off with love, but I don't recall why. They're going to take him to one of the off-world colonies and torture him. He says that he has tools off-world that can make him talk and that he doesn't know... He hasn't begun to know what pain is or something like that. Oh, yeah, they're taking him to agony. Or yep. Yeah. Uh, and this is, here we get the scene with Kay. The, the, one of the most noir scenes in the whole thing. He's out walking in the rain in his great-looking jacket, and he's, re, he's confronted with the reflection of his love in the, the advertisement for the joy uh, bot that anybody can buy. It's kind of his... This was like his real call, as you said before, that he he has kind of denied the call for the past 20 minutes since he found out that he's not the one, but now he's going to take it. And it it kind of feels like it's a fuck this world kind of response he has when he sees that advertisement. I was also wondering if he wants her her perceived death uh, of, of his to be meaningful. Like Mm. she was on this journey as well. It has to have a purpose. Like by seeing it through, does he give her life meaning? And the, the, the leader of the liberation front at one point said, uh, something along the lines of there's nothing more meaningful than to die for a cause you believe in or nothing more human. Uh, So, I think it's it's interesting because it does give context and life to something that might not have had it before. We're going to get into three flying cars now. There's a really cool shot of 
like the levy. I don't know what this levy is, but it has spouts at the top and it like gushes water. It almost seems like when there's like a, a ocean wave that's so big that it would like flow through the wall and then come back out the top of the wall mm-hmm. and send it back out. Um, I was so excited when I realized that this is where we're going to be for the end of this movie mm-hmm. is on this gigantic levee wall with the ocean. And the ocean feels like such a threatening presence. Yes. It's like one of the last forces of nature that still exists that's trying to kill humans. Well, and after the only, I mean, we've had rain and we've had the water reflections in Wallace's office, like, this is wild water. This is natural water. This is the world, like, reclaiming itself, essentially. So Kay does his best impression of Han Solo and takes out the two (laughs) sidecars, leaving just Darth Vader's car Uh in the middle intact. And that crash lands, and now we get the very end of this movie. As Harrison Ford is trapped, the car starts to sink, and Kay and Love have their big fight. And I don't they must have hired stunt performers for this, especially for Love, when she's shot kind of silhouetted, but she's throwing out some like roundhouse head kicks and all sorts of shit and mm-hmm. pretty badass. And uh she ends up Oh, she gets a knife in his side. No, that's always the worst thing is when somebody gets the knife in and then moves the knife. Right. And so she goes like up his side to his ribs and uh, leaves him for dead. What do you think of the fight there? I thought it was it's intense in a way like it's all like close combat stuff. Uh, But the confounding variable of having those massive waves just beat on them over and over again as they're fighting. Uh, it's like a really cool element that I haven't seen before in a fight scene. Sarah. Uh, it made me think actually of uh, there's scenes in uh, one of the lone wolf and cub when uh, he is in uh, a flowing river and they have a battle, but it's not nearly as like, this looks dangerous from every respect. It looks more like that scene in Sorcerer when they're trying to cross the bridge. Yes, it had violent, terrifying water. Yes. Basically. I would love to see just what was... I mean, they must have shot this in a tide pool or some kind of set pool. But I'd be really curious just to see how much of this set was actually existed in practical and how much of the rest of it was just green screen. Um, but it looks so good. What a cool place to have your, your final battle. Yeah. And it is, it's surreal, right? Because it looks totally removed from everything else. You don't see background and cityscape anymore. All you get is ocean. (laughs) Like that's the whole backdrop is this churning ocean. And it's like they're, they're fighting at the edge of nothingness. Just this, they're void on, yeah, they're that on the can edge of like, the void. Yeah. yeah. Um, so Love goes back to get in the car to get Harrison Ford out. But wouldn't you know it, Kay isn't dead yet. He gets the upper hand and drowns her. And now you would think that he would just leave uh, Deckard in the car to drown. Right. Uh, but he ends up saving him instead. And um, 
This part was interesting. Deckard says, well, why'd you save me? You should have just let me die. And uh, Kay says, well, I did. You died back there. We we hear earlier that replicants can't lie. That new model of replicant. Right. So the fact that now Kay is able, it seems like maybe he's evolved through all of this to break some of his programming to not do exactly what he's ordered. And part of that is now being able to construct a lie like this. Yeah, I I didn't even think about that aspect of it um, because it's it's love that says it earlier. Uh, she points out that she is not able to lie to Wallace, but she is still going to tell uh, him that the lieutenant tried to shoot her and she had to kill her. And you get the oh, idea that yeah. she's killing her for at least partially for pleasure. Uh, That's a good point. Yeah. So... But it is like, is is free will what makes us human? Mm. Mm. <laughs> I think there's more to it than that. Yeah. Well, because like, Anna de Armas didn't necessarily have a ton of free will in this movie, but she's definitely still had consciousness. And I think we've decided she was human. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I don't, I, I don't think so. I, I think there's more to it than just free will. Okay. The, it's been well, just my, one of my last notes there is just what a great performance by Gosling's jacket. <laughs> <laughs> and again, it's that furry lapel. I want it. Yeah. I want it. I love it in the beginning of it. Um, when he's approaching Sapper's farm and he's got the, the collar up mm-hmm. and I mean, they're obviously playing off of uh, uh, Harrison Ford's jacket from the first one, the iconic trench coat that he wears uh, with the big collar, but it's, it cuts such a cool figure as a silhouette. Uh, it just looks like it manages to look futuristic just from that silhouette and like, and badass. Definitely. Um, so Kay tells him that he can go now and meet his daughter. So they go. And I thought I, again, the color palette in this movie is pretty striking. How you go from you're in orange world for 15 minutes. And then suddenly we cut back to Los Angeles Mm -hmm. and now we're into like the black cityscape again. And now at the end here, the cut to snow and everything is pure white. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's so many different color palettes in this movie. And each thing, the only two that are close are Wallace's office and uh, Deckard's hideout because the Deckard's is orange and Wallace's is yellow orange. The, the light that we see and everybody looks kind of weird and, and sickly in this place. Uh, but it, I'm, I'm wondering if like, is there a continuum of these spaces uh, or are they just all color coded uniquely? And how much thought is there to the colors themselves having meaning behind them? Or is it literally just like, Oh, like we saw in uh, the descent where the different characters have different colored lights uh, through part of it. 
with the green glow stick and the orange headlamp and the white flashlight uh, just to differentiate where they are. Like, is it just practical or is there a meaning behind it? The Descent's a good movie. We should watch that sometime. We should check that one out. Yeah. (laughs) So we get Deckard goes into the imagination station to talk to his daughter. Uh, Gosling assumedly lies down on the steps to die. I thought this was like a really nice moment, though, at the end to just... If your final moments are like lying there looking up as snow slowly falls down on you, mm-hmm. um, it's not a bad, terrible, it's not a terrible last image to see. So once again, so this movie in Drive, it's got Ryan Gosling. They both have spectacular jackets that I don't think I could pull off. Uh, they both feature a fight by the ocean. And they both have an ending where. He might be dead, or he might not be. That's a good point. Yeah. I really need to see Drive again. Uh, But I feel also it's at least partially because they're both playing within the noir framework uh, that you get that kind of downbeat yet slightly ambiguous ending. Uh, And, I mean, we don't know what a replicant can heal from if these wounds are mortal. Uh, that he that he suffered. We do see him glue, super yeah. glue earlier, and it instantly heals a wound that he receives. Yeah. And replicants don't seem to really experience pain Yeah, the way regular humans do, so I'm with you. He might be alive. Um, it, or is he choosing to expire? Like, give his his life in this cause of reuniting this family. I think it's... it's well, Interesting. What's what's the last image here? Harrison Ford with his hand on the glass? Yes, he, he walks into the imagination station and he sees his daughter uh playing in a snowfall, a fake snowfall inside. Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, like she's in a snow globe break basically, and he's got the wooden horse in one hand and reaches out to the glass. That moment I, I it's pretty emotional when Gosling hands him the wooden horse mm-hmm. to essentially kind of close out his own story and accept like find acceptance in that like this isn't my story right the fact that i carry this story along even though it's not mine and it's time for me to give this up um powerful stuff man my last note <laughs> there's i went the last song reminds me of another's movie score i have to figure it out <laughs> and then my next note is it's the fan exclamation point because I didn't realize, but Hans Zimmer scored The Fan, that baseball movie yes, with yeah. Wesley Snipes. And there's just like two synth notes in this that totally remind me of the last song in The Fan. By the way, it's that last song in the fan. I might throw a little bit of it here in the edit. It's so good. 
It's so good. Yeah, you've talked so about good. this before. You, you brought it up in something else. Uh, yeah, maybe in just I know. A chat I repeat myself a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I think you, you sent me a, a YouTube link of it or something at one point. Yeah, I did. I remember I that. I did, yeah. Well, my friend, that wraps up Blade Runner 2049. What a two-hour, 45-minute journey it was. Um, is this the longest movie we've watched? This might beat Stalker. Is it? Stalker is about 245, I think. Okay. What do you... How many stars is you giving it? Yeah, I think this is our longest. Uh, Blade Runner 2049, for me, gets a beautiful four and a half out of five. I think it's striking. And like we were saying, like I was saying, no movies take their time and linger on shots, but this one does. Um, the fact that they gave 150 to $175 million to make a sci-fi sequel is pretty bonkers, but I'm really glad that they did it. Uh, yeah, the fact that it's um, like a lengthy question and examination of human rights and religious concepts <laughs> disguised as a movie with it's disguised as an actiony sci-fi movie, but really it's got a couple action sequences and it backgrounds all the sci-fi stuff for the more theological concepts that it has going on. And I really appreciate that about it. Editor's note, Josh gives this movie four stars and no heart. Yeah, it's an intellectual wolf in action sheep clothing. Nice. <laughs> well, um, and just as a comparison between the two, I think we did find um, a couple of themes between these be these two noir movies and just noir in general. Overall, I do think a movie like Ex Machina would probably have led us to have more to discuss about the human condition and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I don't know how much these two movies really lended to their discussion of each other, but I enjoyed it as a pairing. Yeah. I think they both have the underpinnings of noir uh, and they both play with it in different ways. Neither one is just a straight ahead kind of uh, what we would think of as one of the Humphrey Bogart Maltese Falcon, the big sleep type. Uh, you know, Hollywood in the 40s and 50s type noir. I'm glad we didn't watch two of those. Yeah. I think that would have, I think it's really fun when you and I pick stuff like this that has big swings. Yes. And we're, we're trying to find the thread in there. Um, but really enjoyed it. Thank you again, man. It was a fun week. It's good to be back on the, the bi-weekly schedule. I think we both needed a little bit of a step back after the month of October. Yeah. Um, I believe what was your, your total for October? How many movies did you watch? Uh, I think it was about 40. Okay. And I was like 49. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah. 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 And so that watching that many movies on top of then having 16 hours of podcasting about eight <laughs> movies. Um, 
October, I hate to say it, but it's just like it was too much movies. <laughs> it's like just too much movies. I've never had that experience before. I've only watched four movies so far this month. And they were The Third Man, All That Jazz, The Red Shoes, and Blade Runner 2049. I'm have my batting average is fucking great for November. Yeah, well, sounds like we're gonna keep that going in two weeks. Yes. But until then, Josh, you take care of yourself. Listeners, take care of yourselves. Be kind to yourselves. Be kind to your neighbors. We'll see you in two weeks. We've been Nashville CA. See you later. You know, it's funny. I don't know how to play our theme song. Yeah, I don't either. <laughs> I tried to figure it out on guitar. And I was like, I know what some of these chords are, but I cannot for the life of me. <laughs> I don't know what I did that day. <laughs>